You, you, you are listening. You are listening. You are listening to the Fly Fishing ninety seven podcast. It's using delicate threads with delicate hooks to attach delicate materials in a in a sophisticated way to mimic a bug, fish, crustacean, bird, frog, whatever you're, you're imitating, kind of thing. And so there's that almost. Uh, I don't want to say spiritual sounds a little, uh, you know, far-fetched and a little crazy, but it, it's definitely one of those things that's very calming because it puts you into the zone. It's it's why I think if you watch, if you've seen the show The Bear, you look at something like that where they work in a restaurant, like a high-end dining restaurant, and you go, how does anyone enjoy this? Where they're shouting at each other and, and things are crashing and falling and the, and the stakes are so high and all that stuff. How could anyone enjoy doing this work? And it's, I don't think they enjoy it because of all the stuff that we see from the outside. It's because it puts you into the flow, the flow state. I mean, mm-hmm. I joked about this with buddies who don't fish with me, uh, with, I like I told my girlfriend who's coming with me to go fishing, she doesn't fish at all, but I told her when I'm fishing, I'm in fishing mode. I'm gonna forget to eat. I'm gonna forget you're there. I'm going to just be in fishing mode and I kind of can get that way when I tie flies. I can just be in tying mode. And it's a way to kind of shut down everything else but um, but what I'm doing at a time. It's a way to detach. Welcome to the Fly Fishing 97 podcast, capturing the fly fishing life, featuring in-depth conversation with fly fishers from all walks of life. The Fly Fishing 97 podcast is brought to you by theflycrate.com, an online fly shop, your source for all things fly fishing. DamianAndy.com, featuring custom music by Damian Anderson. Find out more at D-A-M-I-O-N-A-N-D-Y.com. Broken Tippet Fly Company, for blog and fly fishing apparel, check out brokentippet.com. And Wait For It Films. For action-packed fly fishing videos and camera-related content, visit Wait For It Films on YouTube or at thewaitcreativeco.com. Get ready for the 2023 fly fishing season with the Fly Crate. We have hundreds of trout, bass, panfish, and saltwater flies, ranging from the classic elk hair caddis to jigged Euro nymphs. Join thousands of other fly anglers who fish with the Fly Crate. Listeners of the Fly Fishing 97 podcast get 10% off their first order. Plus, receive free shipping on all U.S. orders over $45. Order today. Go to www.theflycrate.com and use the promo code FLYFISH97 to save 10%. Welcome to this edition of the Fly Fishing 97 podcast. Really happy you were joining us this time around, and we're going to head out to a beautiful part of the world. Uh, we're going to head out to Lebanon, Oregon. We've got Garrett Lesko on the line. Now, Garrett is with OregonFlyTying.com. He's an avid fly tire. Um, he has been, uh, he was at the Northwest Expo, um, has been featured in American Fly Fishing Magazine and written for Fly Fishing and Tying Journal. Um, really stoked to have you on the show today. Garrett, thanks so much for coming on, man. Appreciate it. Yeah, happy to be here. Thanks for having me on. So I always like to begin this show kind of with a bit of your history, and uh, I always like to kind of find out what 
first drew you to the water and specifically fly fishing and tying. Do you remember, or can you tell us about maybe how that journey started? Yeah, so that, that started, oh, I, I, I guess 15 or so years ago now. I, uh, I was in high school, and I did a lot of gear fishing, like conventional fishing. So uh, classic, you know, spinners for trout or bobber and worms, bobber and power bait kind of style stuff. And then that got really, you know, as most people know, that's pretty boring um, just because there's so much, there's not a lot of action going on with it. I mean, when there is action, there's action, but it's not as active. Maybe that's the better word. So then I got into conventional fishing for bass, Mm -hmm. but living in Oregon, it's just not super prominent. I mean, there's lots of bass here, lots of smallmouth. We probably have two of the most uh, famous rivers in the world for smallmouth, maybe three if you include the Columbia, but we have the Umpqua, Columbia, and John Day. And so I did a lot of smallmouth bass, a lot of largemouth bass fishing. And then I went we, at my school that I went to, uh, when the seniors were going on their senior trip, all the underclassmen, so freshmen, sophomore, juniors, you know, grade nine, 10, 11, would be, uh, would go on these trips that we called mini sessions. And so it could be anything from staying back at the school and watching classic movies with a teacher because kids like movies or going on trips or doing many, many other things. And we went to, uh, I signed up for a trip to go to Odell Lake and Odell Lake is, uh, gosh, where would I say it's in Oregon? It's on highway 58. So if you, if people know Eugene, it's heading East from Eugene over the pass and it's a big, big lake. If there's, I guess it's only claim to fame would be it has um, lake trout in it, which everyone calls Mackinac around here. I don't know if that's a national or global kind of term for lake trout, but we call Mackinac. Hmm. And there was a old Macintosh game called Odell Lake where you played fit. You, you, you were fish. It's, you know, old school eight bit style video game. It was called Odell Lake. Um, but we went there to fish for Kokanee and a buddy of mine, brought his fly rod and I had no idea what fly fishing was. And he caught a huge trout on his float tube at the, at the mouth of the Creek that leaves the lake or the head of the Creek, I guess is a better way to put it. And then he would fish the Creek that was leaving the lake and caught a ton of fish. And I was transfixed. I thought it was the coolest thing. And I kind of forgot about it. But then that summer I found an old fly tying vice in the garage that my dad had bought at some point And I started playing around with it. And luckily, I have a local fly shop uh, in Albany. That's where we were living at the time. And that is a Two Rivers fly shop. And I walked over the river, over the bridge to the shop, bought a kit, and started tying. And that's kind of the rest is history. I just kind of took it and ran. And it completely fulfilled something in my brain that I didn't have before. I just really love tying. So I tell people I tied flies before I fished them. I tied a bunch of flies and obviously they're all terrible, you know, they're your first flies, but I had no way to fish them. I just, because hmm. I didn't have a fly rod. I just had the tying kit. So I, and, and old Thompson vice and old Thompson tools. And oh, so, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> which was, you know, looking back at it now, it was, you know, I didn't know what I had kind of thing. And, uh, I, uh, fished that. I, I tied with that. And then I found an old reel and bought an old line that was like one of those $40 cheapo lines that you can buy at like a Walmart or a Bymart or something like that. Mm-hmm. And then I had a buddy who had a fly rod that was just collecting dust in the garage, a different friend of mine. He said, oh, you can take that one if you want. So I took that one and I think it was like a six, seven weight. And I don't think I even paired the right line with it or anything. And that's how I kind of started getting into it. That's awesome. And 
Yeah, so that that's what happened. I think the first fish I caught on a fly wasn't even on a fly rod. It was, you know, using a bubble right. and a spinning rod. Um, and that was, I think, that summer at some point. And when I did that, I think that's when the light bulb really clicked because I got to create something and then catch a fish on it. And yeah. that whole process was just very satisfying. But at this point, I tie a ton like a ton, a ton. Uh, if anyone sees my social media at all, you'll see all that. It's just, I tie a ton. I have a lot of materials. I tie more probably than I fish, um, hmm. you know, in the grand scheme of things. Um, but to give people some perspective, I guess, is I can probably count on one hand how many flies I've ever bought to fish with. And if you include my other hand, it would include all the flies total I've ever bought just to use as like a reference and a fish with. <laughs> so I probably bought less than 10 flies in my entire life. That's period. A, that's a great quote. I love it. Well, there's not many people, Garrett, that I've talked to that started tying before they started kind of fly fishing. I have talked to a couple, but it's not the norm, is it? No, it's it's really not the norm. I've talked to, because I've been in the fly tying world, and luckily because living in Oregon, there's a lot of people in the fly fishing and fly tying industry around me, uh, just talking to people that know, you know, industry stats and industry numbers. It, it's basically, if you take of all fishermen, they say like 1% fly fish, and out of that 1%, maybe another 1% tie avidly um, within that. So it's a very, very small subset mm-hmm. of fishermen tie fly, I mean, of fly fishermen that tie flies, and then an extremely smaller subset of those who just fish in general that tie flies. I, I have a friend of mine who's who I try to tie with a few times a month and he doesn't even fish. I mean, he goes fishing maybe once a year, but he ties every day of the year. Hmm. He's just a big tire, which is super rare. It's not normal. Most people fish and they tie maybe half a dozen patterns that they don't want to pay for at the fly shop kind of thing. Yeah. Fair. That's cool though. I, 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 I do understand that because I, like I look at it this way, Garrett, it's almost like for, and you're probably in a similar boat. It, there's a tying season for me. Like, like where I probably tie more than I normally would, you know, if I'm going fishing or something and I got a trip coming up, I'll definitely hit the bench. But, you know, as soon as the snow starts to fly and it starts getting a little cooler, I'm like, okay, now this is when I really kind of, kind of bear down and just get into it. So for me, I tie year round. So I tie a lot all the time just because it's easier to go set at the bench and tie flies after a day of work kind of thing. And it is to try to get rigged up and go fishing, especially as you say, when it's cold out, you know, Oregon's not as bad as probably Canada. I mean, we probably won't get any snow this year based on what they're saying with an El Nino year, hmm. but, um, down here in the Valley, but generally speaking, the winter time, I tie a lot more, but, um, yeah, I, I tie all the time. I kind of go through phases of tying. So I will tie every single night a couple hours a night and then every day on the weekend, as long as I'm not busy doing stuff all day long kind of thing while I sit at my desk and watch TV or shows or something like that. And then I'll kind of get out of that and go into a funk for a week or two and do other things, other hobbies, you know, something else. And then I'll go right back to tying. Tying is very consistent. I mean, yeah, I've definitely put in my 10,000 hours as they say. So, um, probably at least two or three or four or five times that, but yeah, I, I tie a ton. 
I love it. So we're going to dig into your tying. We're going to talk about your business. We're going to talk about OregonFlyTying.com. Um, but but before we do that, can you cite a few, you might have touched on it a little bit, but just some general influences, and it could be tying, could be fly fishing. But if you had to look back, who would you say kind of either mentored you or kind of uh, gave you some good pointers along the way? Yeah, so I would... Um... The thing I like to tell people is I definitely started tying flies, uh, learning how to tie flies in the golden uh, years of learning how to do it yourself. I mean, there was a period of time where fly tying, you could look at books, they're black and white or, you know, hand drawn uh, images. And then there were some photos. And then we went to more like magazines and color and then books and then YouTube and so on and so forth. Um but for me, at my time that I tied, so as I said, 15 years ago, I'm not going to do the math right now. It's too late in the evening. But um, my, I was generally self-taught. I had a buddy in high school. His name was Cody. He, uh, he kind of taught me the basics. Like we, He came over and we tied a woolly bugger together. But then I basically, because I was 14 years old, 13 years old, however old I was, I... Um, I didn't have money. I didn't have a job. I didn't have a car. I didn't have disposable income. So it's not like I could go take a class anytime I wanted or um, go work a job to make money to go do that. So I was basically self-taught, you know, generally speaking. So a lot of YouTube, YouTube was a big deal because it was, Mm -hmm. you know, a video actually watching it, but I got books for every Christmas or birthday I had. I went to the, I went to the library constantly um, checking out books, finding books, going to donation bins, getting old books that are basically falling apart and using those as like motivations to tie lots of different stuff. And I, I would say probably the first year of fly tying, I tied everything I could see. I bought materials for it. I looked for it. I found it. I made some mistakes in like what I bought. I remember going to a, fl- a fly shop and seeing brown and olive thread in there. And I didn't have brown and olive at that point. And I read somewhere in a book like, oh, that's a color you should have. So I just bought them not knowing the difference. And they were Kevlar threads. And oh, okay. now with my current knowledge, I think all Kevlar threads should just be removed from the planet. It's terrible stuff. I mean, <laughs> I tied, I tied deer hair bass bugs and you couldn't get, you couldn't put Kevlar in, in my, possession even if you wanted to i hate kevlar sucks Mm. and so i didn't know it at the time um because i was just i was a kid i just didn't know any better and you know you learn those kind of things along the way but my first year was awful but as far as mentors as people i really looked up to um definitely uh guys like uh davy mcphail tim flagler those guys who did incredible fly high production fly time videos at the time. Um, and then, uh, other YouTube stuff. So the guys from black Canyon outfitters, I believe that's what they are. The ones in South Dakota, then the caddis fly shop and Eugene had a ton of videos. And then at the time I was even following the fly fish food guys when it was called the, their YouTube channel wasn't even called fly fish food. It was called Curtis Fry. It was just Curtis's name as as the youtube channel is so new it was when they were doing another garage and then right now the guys i look up to and i tie with and i would say our mentors is i have a friend named garen wood and he's probably best known for uh woven steelhead flies he does a japanese woven steelhead 
bodied fly, you know, they're woven bodied flies. They're really, really cool. Mm-hmm. He uh, just uh, bought a, a hook making company where he hand makes blind eye traditional salmon hooks. So he does that, but I tie with him every other week is what we shoot for unless our schedules don't work out. And then the other mentor friend that I really uh, look up to like his tying and books and everything is, is Jay Nicholas. And he's another local guy. He did a lot of work with Caddisfly. He's known for Pacific city salmon and Pacific city fishing in general. But as far as my style, I think probably the biggest influence for sure is Davy McPhail. Uh, just the cleanness of how he ties is very much how I tie currently. Yeah, I love watching that guy. I really do. It's very oh, it's I, incredible. Well, I, I was having this similar conversation with somebody a few weeks back, and he's kind of like the Bob Ross of fly tying for me. It just kind of relaxes me. I don't. I, <laughs> oh yeah, I spoke at a local club. Well, it wasn't really. It's not very local to me. It was two hours south of me, but it was a fly fishing club. And before the meeting kind of kicked off, they just had Davy McPhail videos on the projector screen, just going. So it's that it's very much that's a great way to put it the the, the Bob Ross of fly tying. He's he's probably influenced my style more than anyone. Um, and then I guess probably the other one is a big influence because if anyone knows me for anything, obviously you gave some of my uh, cred up front. But at the shows I, I've tied at, you know, I've tied at all kind of around the Pacific Northwest is deer hair bass flies. Okay. And so Pat Cohen was a huge influence on that. So. Cool. I've never met him in person, but I've as soon as I found him, I got his DVD, his tools, the bodies, the ultra suede cutouts, all that kind of stuff. I was all about it. And so as far as I know, I'm kind of even now, if I go into a fly shop that's outside of my normal range and if anyone recognizes me at all, I'm I'm the deer hair guy. Love it. And so now tell us a little bit. We'll get into your your fly time, but I know you've got some some expos coming up. What maybe uh, why don't we talk about some of the shows you're going to be at over the uh, winter kind of late, let's say late winter season? Yeah. So the the most the one that's coming up the soonest would be it's in the end of February, uh, and that's the fly fishing show in Bellevue, Washington. That's the show that tours around the country. Hmm. They do it in Edison, New Jersey, and Pleasant, California, Denver. And then they and they also do it in other cities, but also Bellevue, Washington. So basically Seattle, and that's uh, February seventeenth and eighteenth, or eighteenth yep. and nineteenth, something like that. I've been and waiting then, for that one to come back, to be honest with you, Garrett, because I, I used to go to it most years, and uh, it hasn't it hasn't run the the past few, at least two or three years, has it? I think it ran last year. Oh, it did. Um, but okay. I think it was kind of like everyone was dipping their toe into or right. maybe ran technically it ran this year 2023 gotcha. but it was kind of like are we sure we're going to get back to doing this right. and then this upcoming 2024 season should be like full force everyone's going for it so cool. that one is in february um end of february and then uh very beginning of march it's the second saturday uh friday saturday in march which i think is the 8th and the 9th that's at the Northwest Expo uh, fly tying and fly fishing show. And that's really a fly tying show. It's like 200 tires, over 50 people doing exhibits. And then there's workshops and classes and all this kind of stuff. It's, it's 
from what my understanding is, it's the biggest fly tying show, not fishing show, but tying show hmm. uh, in the West. And where's that? So, Sorry, where's that at? That's in Albany, Oregon. Okay. So it's about an hour, hour 15 south of Portland. Um, but it's it, we get guys from California, Oregon, Washington, Idaho, Montana, Utah, Nevada. We basically get everyone from a lot of guys from the West out here. Mm-hmm. to do it and it ranges from young guys to old guys and so i'll, I'll tie it that one uh as well over the two days so if someone wants to come and see me actually tie flies and i and i imagine i'll either do i'll probably do deer hair flies at one of the shows and then something else at another show to be determined but it's kind of the problem when you tie a ton of other stuff but the thing that really gets people coming over and talking and seeing what you're doing is the deer hair bass flies they make a big mess and they look really cool and they it's very challenging so people want to see it actually being done in person so it definitely gets a crowd formed yeah oh for (laughs) sure it's amazing it's amazing i mean i was looking at some of your patterns and i know you're doing some amazing things and uh you're not going to be tying it at some of these shows you're talking about if you're not you know, uh, pretty skilled, uh, tire. So I love it. Um, I want to take some time to get to know your day to day, Garrett, before we jump into your business, you ready for a few questions to get to know your, uh, neck of the woods. Sure. Absolutely. Let's talk about tunes. Like, are you a big music guy? So if you're headed to your favorite stretch of uh, river or even still water, like what's playing in the truck en route? So, uh, we kind of talked about this beforehand. So I do listen to a lot of music. It comes from my dad. My dad's a huge audiophile, so I listen to a lot of music. I listen to a lot of podcasts. So if it's not a podcast and it is going to be music because I'm in a music mood, it's so cliche to say everything. And I won't say everything, but it definitely ranges from folk to rock to Western to electronic to pop, jazz, kind of just all over the gambit. So to get it to make it more confusing i love the band queen i love the band fart barf i love the band i love harry styles dua lipa the band rat like basically a a very eclectic music taste um and i'm one of those psychos that uses their spotify i don't think maybe how spotify intends i just have one giant playlist that has like a thousand (laughs) songs on it (laughs) yeah i get that I, I don't it. have like a broken up. My girlfriend does that. She breaks up every like little subcategory and like mood she'd be in. And that's all her Spotify playlist. And mine is, I just have one playlist called all the songs and I'll just put that on shuffle and yeah. see where it goes. What do you do? Okay. So let's say you're sitting at the tying bench and maybe you don't have a buddy. Say you're doing it on your own. Do you have usually podcasts or tunes in the background? Um, if I'm in production mode, so if I'm tying flies for an order, which I kind of just do, uh, two, two order flies, but if I'm in an order, I got to do something that's not visual. So I got to do a podcast, which if it's an episode of a show that's up, then I'll listen to that or I'll do music. And then that music, I try to listen to stuff like very instrumental. So, mm-hmm. um, this time of year I have like a Christmas playlist that has no vocals. It's just instrumental or, there's one Spotify playlist, I think it's called uh, a Japanese hotel lobby. So very just like <laughs> chill yeah. music, like the lo-fi kind of style music to just, yeah. so I can kind of get into the, to the flow of tying. Cause otherwise what happens is, cause I watch a lot of movies or, or things like that. And so 
I, if I'm watching something like that, I can get distracted and I'm not tying as efficiently as I need to. If it's for my own box, I'll watch something. But if it's not, then I got to be a little bit more hmm. focused. <laughs> oh, a gamer. I like it. Um, so I'm curious about your podcast listening habits. Like, so, because this is something that I, I, I love podcasts in general, not just fishing wise, but just, you know, name about any topic. And I, I definitely get a lot out of them. I listen to a lot of music podcasts. What, what kind of podcasts do you listen to and, and how do you find them? So, so I either get recommend, they get recommended to me by friends or pe- or family or people I know that have one. And, um, I went through true crime phase. So I listened to a lot, probably one of my favorite true crime podcasts. I mean, everyone talks about serial and serial season one was great. And I think serial season three was another good one. I didn't really care for season two, but season three and season one were great. Um, and then my favorite true crime podcast for sure is called live and die in LA. And it's just a really well done, uh, concise podcast, um, that I enjoy. I, I listen to hardcore history. If anyone, if anyone out there knows what that is, it's basically just, it's a amateur. I wouldn't say amateur because he's getting paid for it, but a historian that compiles firsthand or secondhand account stuff from times in history. And he makes these multi-part hours long podcasts. And my favorite one he's ever done that I've listened to is called supernova in the East. It's called in it's, basically the rise and fall of the Japanese empire from the time they were opened up to the world to the time the bombs were dropped. So it, it, that was really fascinating. And then a few, I don't know, world event political ones, usually only if the topic, you know, piques my interest or the host has a guest on. I like, I listen to uh, some comedy ones. So Pete Holmes has a podcast called you made it weird. And he's a stand up that I really like. And he interviews anyone from, a Franciscan friar to a physicist to comedians to actors to songwriters to everybody, hmm. and basically the premise is comedy, sex, God. So it's <laughs> oh. the idea is your job, your relationships, what happens after you die, and it's wow, very insightful. And it's one of those marathon podcasts where it could be anywhere from an hour to four hours, which I really like. Yeah, because again, if you're driving somewhere, I mean. My plan is at the end of this week is to go out to central Oregon and fish the crooked river. And that's a three hour drive there and a three hour drive back. So if something's four hours long, I can still, I can listen to almost all of it, the drive there and get, you know, finish it up before I'm even home. So it means I don't have to have 40 podcasts lined up. I can just have two or three. Love it. So, yeah. So I kind of listen to a little bit of everything. There's one that I, there's only one podcast I pay for called the after disaster. And it's just, three guys that are just friends that all work together at one point. And now it's been going on for 12 years and it's just a comedy podcast. Essentially. You made me laugh when you said you're into rat. Cause I have another podcast, I do a video <laughs> podcast with a bunch of buddies and we just did best rat songs of all time. Oh, rat's great. Like that hair metal time is great. You know, twisted sister and rat, you know, and it's, I, I pull rat, you know, in a way of saying, you know, it's not a known band. Most people don't know Rat. No, They might know a Rat song, but they don't know it's from Rat. They know, you know, Straight Out of the Cellar or Round and Round or... Yeah, exactly. Invasion, Your Privacy. Yeah, yeah, all that all that great, that 80s hair metal, that, that very... <laughs> yeah, that's cracking Yeah, it's up. a good time. It was very timely as you threw that out there. I love it. 
Um, okay, so now this is a crazy question for you because you probably have so many different patterns in your fly boxes, or maybe not. I don't know. But <laughs> what's one pattern that you're putting on the end of your tippet more often than not? Oh my gosh! So what a what a question to ask a, a guy who right? ties more than he fishes. I mean, uh, I would have to break it down to whatever species I'm going for, kind of thing. It's it's less like what I'm doing. So like, I'm going to go fishing this, um, this Friday and it's white, white fish spawn season. So basically anything that is a yellowy orange peachy color, Oregon cheese is the color. Um, and that's the color of white fish spawn. But I mean, when it comes to still waters, a good damsel is pretty hard to beat when it comes to a river um classic oregon flies a posse bugger okay if i that's a great fly to have on what color uh, i oh natural just all natural okay possum posse bugger so kind of a gray gray brown kind of yeah it's kind of like a souped up hair's ear it has a lot of uh, moving parts like when i say a lot of moving parts it's one of those so it has flash in the tail which is a possum fur tail and then it runs lateral flash down the sides with a copper rib and it has a soft tackle and a and another thorax and a bead it can be a whole lot of stuff i mean the urinymph guys have made it you know they've, they've str- streamlined it quite a bit so it's not as i don't want to say like they made it a little simpler but mm-hmm. for a river that's a good one love a frenchie um love a waltz worm and then if it comes to ocean stuff it's like a clouser or like a jetty worm or something like that Hmm. Um, but yeah, feel, it really depends on what I'm fishing for. How do you feel about pertagons? I thought I saw kind of a lot of variations on your, uh, on your site. I do really like them. I've really, uh, they kind of go through phases. I have a bunch of uranium boxes as I was trying to get into competitive fly fishing. So I kind of got into that, but, um, I, there's a pertagon that I fished that I really like called, Oh gosh, I think they call it a blue berry or a blue boy or something like that. It, it was developed by the Deschutes Angler, uh, Deschutes Angler um, Amy uh, Hazel at Deschutes Anglers in on in Maupin. And it's basically, it's a really simple fly. So tied on a jig hook traditionally with a silver tungsten bead. And then it is coquille on tail like all paradigons. Hmm. And then it is the blue glowbright floss as the body. And then a fluorescent orange thread collar with like the skinniest orange thread you can get your hands on. So I use 60 knot and then you just coat that entire thing in the UV resin and that's it. No wing case, nothing. It's just a blue and orange fly. And that fly is the sleeper fly. It's the one that you never see coming. You don't, you don't think, well, why would blue work? Nothing looks blue in the water. Yeah. And that blue fly, I, on my local water, which is the South San Diego, I am fishing that one. I'm fishing one of another uranium that's a bit, you know, it's a, a tag variation. So kind of in that blow torch, red dart family, I call a highway star, which is a purple and copper kind of one, or I'm fishing like a quill to go on. So that those, those flies are really good for like river fishing if I'm doing that. But you know, sometimes you just got to mix it up because you know, yeah. certain flies work. You got to try something different. Well, you, you named a few beauties right there. Uh, yeah. Let's talk about where you like to get your fix in the fly fishing space when you're not out there. Um, and by that, I mean, you know, is, is it social media for you? Is it a local fly shop? Where do you get your fill of fly fishing when you're not in your waders? 
Well, I definitely have earned my seat at the fly shop as being one of those regular guys that can come in and actually sit down and just hang out in the shop. I think every shop kind of has those guys who have been coming to the shop long enough where it's not weird for them just to plop down and hang out for a while. <laughs> yeah, I love um, it. And so I, I'll do that. So on the weekends where I don't fish, so my fly shop is closed Sundays and Mondays, but uh, either a Friday after work or if I'm running errands in town and I, I'm there, I'll just plop in and hang out for an hour or two. Even if I don't buy anything, I just hang out because someone will come through that I know, or if no one comes through, I can just talk with the shop owner, Mitch there. Um, otherwise I do a lot of social media stuff. Um, Instagram, I still think is the best place out there for, um, fly fishing and fly tying. I mean, the three social medias I think that are actually good for fly fishermen and fly tires would be, uh, Facebook, even though it is a dumpster fire, it's the Facebook groups. And my Facebook is curated to the, to the max. So I have a super curated Facebook where I don't see weird political stuff or people's babies or someone graduating. It's all just fishing focused. Um, and I just focus on the, uh, the fishing groups, the fishing groups are awesome. It's basically like the old school forums, um, but all in one place. So I'll go there, Instagram and YouTube. I think the other ones, I think Twitter and threads are terrible for fly fishing content and people interacting on there. And I just don't think TikTok is the right audience for fly fishermen and fly tires. I mean, it does fine for those guys, I'm sure. But compared to non-fly fishing and fly tying related content, I don't think it does very, very well. But from what I can tell from buddies who have YouTube channels and, and myself who has an Instagram and Facebook, you get way more engagement, like actual real people engaging with your content or, you know, sending each other DMs, you know, interacting in, in positive ways mm-hmm. seems for me to happen mostly on Instagram, Facebook and YouTube. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I agree with you, though, on the Instagram in particular. And I think as a fly tire, because you're really looking at a lot of patterns close up and some people are doing some amazing patterns, some amazing things and some really good photography. There's just so much you can take away, whether it's inspiration, you know, giving you an idea. Hey, let's try this colored collar with this rib. I, I, I find Instagram really helpful for my time. Oh, oh yeah. And, and the save feature, I think, is hugely um, beneficial. I use it constantly. If you saw my save folders on Instagram, which I use all the time as reference or um, mostly just reference. So like if I'm filling a new box, I go, well, I need coronamids. I just go to my Stillwater section and start scrolling through to see stuff that I've seen, you know, as far back as eight, 10 years ago and as as new as the same day and i can just it's really nice for compiling reference photos and i think that has allowed me to um especially in this area set myself apart not just in my fishing but in my tying where i for example this month this is november um we i spoke at a club in roseburg and a club in salem and i both talked about still water fishing i do a lot of still water fishing here in oregon Mm -hmm. And the flies that I bring and the flies that I showcase, most guys in this area looked at me like I was telling them I was speaking Arabic or something. They had no idea what they didn't know what a blob was. They've never heard of a booby. They don't know what hmm. a polling fly is. 
they have no idea when I say a buzzer, I have to be like, it's a coronamid. Right. It, it's the same thing we call it here, tying them on straight shank hooks like they do across the pond, mm-hmm. you know, doing things. I mean, to me, that doesn't seem that crazy, but to most guys, most guys here are tying hare's ears, a flashback pheasant tail, an ice cream comb, a zebra midge, and, and using an indicator, and maybe a bunny leech. Right. They're not really going, they're not very adventurous. And that's what I've really found in fly fishing and fly tying in general. I, and my, I'd say my case study on this is there's a fly shop in Eugene, Oregon called the Caddis Fly. And it was, it's a very, very popular fly shop, especially online. They're one of the first fly shops to go online and one of the first fly shops that offered very affordable shipping. So they become very popular around the world uh, just because of that. Hmm. But they have a blog called Oregon Fly Fishing, which is a great URL to have. And they have two rivers that go into that, t- go in that area that they're their home rivers. They have the McKenzie river, which is up there. It's probably one of the most famous rivers in Oregon. And then we have a section of the Willamette river called the middle fork of the Willamette. And I mean, they will talk about both rivers equally as much on their blog all the time. And when I go to the McKenzie, I always see other anglers always every single time I've gone. Hmm. It doesn't matter how out of the way or up in the sticks I go. There's always somebody it's never crowded, but there's always somebody. Yeah. Um, over the last 15 years, every time over the last 15 years that I've been fish, fly fishing, I've gone to the middle fork of the Willamette probably at least once a year, every year, and I've maybe seen five people total. You know what strikes me though, where you are at, Garrett, in in Oregon and, and specifically in the parts of Oregon that you're fishing, you do get a real cross section, right? Like there's there's you know a lot of times you go interior wise and there's is more still water. You're coastal, yeah. You're gonna have salmon, steelhead, totally different flies. Like when you're talking about blobs and boobies and some of these patterns that you know they fish overseas, I find it fascinating because you kind of alluded to it earlier. It's like you know you kind of get your little niche. In, in the tying world, you know, say you're doing deer hair, you're doing deer hair bass flies. I know a lot of people, and I got a lot of bass around here that don't even, have never even fished a, a bass fly. You know what I mean? Basically, it's like they're just trying to catch trout. So there, there's just so many avenues and rabbit holes you can dive into. Oh, oh, yeah. The line I say is you can catch a fish every single day in Oregon within two hours of almost anywhere in the state, which is really cool that we have that opportunity but it's interesting to see the guys that will go to the same place over and over and over again. And those are the same guys that when I go to these clubs and speak in front of them about whatever topic it may be, are the same old timers that complain about how it's so crowded now, the fishing isn't like it used to be, and they're just not ready to, they just never expand their horizons. And it's really interesting. We have, like most places out West, we have bad wildfires now every season. And so we had a bad one, not last year, but the year before last, that shut down probably one of the most popular still waters in the state, Crane Prairie Reservoir. It's a big, shallow reservoir that has uh, crane bow rainbows, a specific strain that get huge. You know, we're talking double-digit poundage-wise rainbows. Hmm. And that lake is swarming with fly anglers and every type of watercraft you've ever seen every single day the season's open for that lake and when the fires came through they shut the roads down to that lake just because they didn't want people kind of in the area right and so people had to go other places and this buddy of mine his dad fishes it every single weekend it's open and 
he never went down, you know, another hour south, he can go to a place like Diamond Lake, which is deeper. It's a different lake. It has tiger trout in it and brown trout instead of just rainbows. Hmm. And it's a fantastic fishery. And it's, you know, far less people, you know, way more off the beaten path, but it's a totally different type of thing with potentially bigger fish, different fish, you know, a tiger trout pulls differently than a rainbow. And, you know, they never would have done that unless they were forced off their, um, yeah. you know, forced out of their comfort zone. We, I, At least here in Oregon, I see a lot of people who are comfort zone fishermen. They definitely want to fish the same stuff over and over and over and over again, which is fine. I mean, if, if it's a good well, keep going back to it. You know, as they say, don't leave fish to find fish. But being a young guy um, in the industry and in the area who fly fishes, I have found you know, taking, walking the extra quarter mile or driving the extra 30 minutes to an hour can make a big difference as far as how much company you're going to have and what kind of fishing you're going to get. But it's just, I mean, that's just what I notice. I don't know how it is in other states or other areas. Mm-hmm. Um, no, I think, I that's... guess you can speak to that up in, up in Canada. Well, you're, you're bang on and I'm guilty of it. It's like, I do frequent usually lakes that I know I have a chance at a, you know, not necessarily a trophy fish, but a, and let's just call it a, you know, a, a picture worthy fish that you're like, wow, this is, this is uh, not necessarily double digits, but maybe four or five pounds. Um, yeah. You know, and then those lakes that are, you know, prolific with smaller fish, we kind of stay away from those for the most part, but it just depends, you know, like, and I agree with you. Like, it's good to open the horizons. I, I we experienced a very similar thing. Even last year, there's a couple uh, lakes that had forest fires basically right around them and I couldn't go to. Um, so it forced us to go further afield and you kind of revisit some old friends, you know, that you've maybe haven't fished in a few years and, uh, yeah, you're right. It's nice to, uh, kind of mix it up a bit. And it reminds me, it, it is kind of boring fishing the same waters all the time. You know, it's, it's nice to see some, some new water, like even just going around the corner on your favorite stretch in the river sometimes is all it takes. Right. Oh, oh yeah. And like, and then there's certain areas that are great for lots of people. So, um, I'm a moderator on the Oregon saltwater fly fishing Facebook group. And it's basically focused on jetty fishing here in Oregon, which is a very unique kind of, um, uh, fishing in Oregon in particular. I mean, California doesn't have very many jetties that have rockfish, or they just don't have very many jetties and neither does Washington, but Oregon does just because of the way the, the geograph, you know, the geology of the state is with the rivers and all that stuff. And so we have ample fishing. You can fish off the rocks and catch rockfish on the fly rod and it's super productive. And I've gone out there and honestly, I've told guys we could have 300 other fly anglers out here and it would not feel crowded. There's just so much real estate and so much fish that it's not there's just so much room. And so I try to do a fish along at least once a year out there. Um, so if anyone's a local person who wants to do it, join the Facebook group. I try to post and uh, do a fish along out there. But it is um, an awesome fishery. It's an awesome catch and keep fishery. If people want to do it, it's mm-hmm. um, one of the only places in the entire state of Oregon you can fish at night. And that's how I like to fish it. So I'll do all that. Uh, I'll do that at night, which is really fun because I can go there after work and then still have the whole weekend to me to do other things besides fishing. Mm-hmm. Um, and a rockfish 
you'll be shocked how hard a one pound rockfish will pull, how, how convinced you are a one pound fish will break your eight weight. Um, <laughs> which is, it, which is awesome. It's an awesome experience to have. And so, and if you're willing to brave it a little bit, I mean, I did a fish along one time that wasn't a nighttime fish along. It was a daytime one. And I mean, the wind picked up five degrees and 12 of the 15 guys that showed up just left. They went out ah, not dealing with the wind. I'm out of here. It just took off. And so when you have that, it's just like, all right, well, I guess it's more for us. And it, it was, hmm. you know, more fun fishing kind of doing that, that stuff. So it's willing to be a little adventurous. I mean, I talk about it and people are just shocked that you can do it. And, I have learned that any fish you can cast to, you can catch on a fly rod. And I, that's, that's my disclaimer. I mean, I'm sure someone's done it, you know, don't get in the DMS and tell me you've seen it. Cause I'm sure it exists, but like sturgeon on a fly rod is not really feasible. <laughs> you know, catfish on a fly rod is not really feasible. Right. Um, I'm sure someone's done it. I'm sure there's a YouTube video out there of someone trying it, but it's, you know, it's casting fish that you can, catching off flyword it's really what it's it yeah. can excels at if anything you talk about chuck and duck you'd be doing some serious ducking if you're fishing for those bottom feeders <laughs> oh <laughs> yeah oh yeah I, i'm sure i i may have seen it at one point but it's basically you it's kind of like how they do uh i think it's sailfish or marlin where they kind of use a plug to get the fish in close and then they kind of do an old switcheroo with a fly and I think that's kind of what I've seen with sturgeon. They fish them in shallower water and they do like an old switcheroo. Hmm. <laughs> and then, but the problem with a fly rod, it does, it's really great for fish that run. So distance, uh, a fly rod performs very well with, um, a fly rod is terrible at lifting. Yeah, you're, that's true. It's really, really bad at lifting things. And so when you get a fish that really dog piles yeah. and it are, you know, dogs down and bulldogs, yeah, it is it is really hard to lift anything when you have a nine foot rod. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. Love it. Uh, let's talk sports. Now I, I know you're not that far from Corvallis, um, but who are you cheering for? So uh, are you a college sports guy, pro football, baseball? Who's your team? Oh man, you are asking the wrong guy about sports. I don't follow sports that closely at all. I'm one of those weird guys out there that's not a big sports guy but if it comes to sports at all like um american thanksgiving is tomorrow i know canada's already had their thanksgiving a month ago but um the time of our recording it's tomorrow um football will be on the tv for sure when i go over to my parents house and hang out with family over there we'll watch nfl football and i played football in high school so it's easy to pay attention to and even not pay attention to and still know what's going on um, and then if I had to follow a team, I follow Michigan, which is having its best year ever, but I'm always prepared for them to disappoint me. Um, <laughs> Michigan, it's my dad's alma mater. It's where my dad got his graduate degree. So we follow okay. Michigan and every year Michigan seems to do really, really well. And then they just, uh, literally and mostly figuratively fumble the ball. Um, Harp- usually in playoff season, but Harbaugh's I mean, not, not, a, isn't he on a, didn't he get suspended or something? Oh, yeah, exactly. This is what yeah. I'm talking about. Yeah. They, they're number one in the entire country, and their coach gets suspended. So they'll find a way. They, mm-hmm. They're really good at it. Um, but I follow Michigan. Um, my girlfriend goes to OSU, so mm-hmm. there's a little bit of that. But it's funny. Her mom loves U of O football, loves U of O football. And so when she came and visited about a month ago, 
we just sat and watched, I, I just watched Juvo football with her because she doesn't get to watch it because she's in the Midwest. And so they don't have the, the Pac-12 out there. So she's, she can only watch it when she's out here or she watches it on the internet or something like that. So I follow that. The girl, my girlfriend's from Minnesota. So she wants me to get into hockey. And I, I was watching the playoffs this year a little bit because it was just on the TV at the gym when I was going to the gym. Mm-hmm. So um, I might get into that uh, coming up. But I like I tried baseball and it's just not doesn't grab me like it should. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, guys, I know plenty of guys who tie flies and watch baseball because it's not super action packed and they can do both of those things. Yeah, no, I, but, yeah, but ball is good for that kind of background. You don't have to pay attention to every pitch. I mean, exactly, but I just, it was too too much for me. I follow a rugby page on my TikTok. I like that a little bit. I mean, I'm not a huge sports guy. It's just not my kind of mm-hmm. uh, cup of tea. I'm a big movie guy, though, so I watch a ton of movies. What kind so of that's movies? kind of my what kind of movies fix. you like? So I tend to, like more drama drama thrillers um i i don't really watch a lot of comedy and i really don't like horror movies they just give me so much anxiety um <laughs> with you on that. I, I i watch uh i watch one horror movie a year typically at, at minimum i always watch on halloween so this year's movie was halloween but i've watched other horror movies on other years um and then i'll watch one or you know a couple more throughout the year but i it's usually under duress. Like I watched, <laughs> I watched Nope last year when it came out. I watched The Crazies this year because uh, my girlfriend really wanted to watch it, so yeah. we ended up watching it. Um, I'm trying to think of other ones, but like recently, the movies I've watched recently, I just watched The Whale, which with is Brendan Fraser. It's one how he won his Oscar. That was incredible. That movie has stuck with me for a while. So that was a really good movie. Um, and then I watched uh, a new movie, David Fincher film called The Killer, with Michael Fassbender playing an assassin. That movie was very good. It was very good for being, you know, a straight to Netflix movie. And then I watched an old film noir because it was free on YouTube called Night of the Hunter. Okay. And that's an old. It's the. It's where I don't know if you've ever seen. It's it gets referenced a lot, but when you see the, on the knuckles, love and hate tattooed on someone's knuckles, mm-hmm. it comes from that 1955 movie. And it's it it's, it was good for what it was. It's very hokey because it's a 1955 movie, but it was. It's a great um, film student movie. I'm sure it gets shown in film class all around the country. Kind of movie. It's it has those kind of, you know camera angles and shadows and lighting and you know the i'd say special effects of the time it was all that kind of stuff at the time a lot of imagery it's a big imagery heavy movie so um it's i I watch a ton i try to watch a new movie every week and then wow that's uh, dedication right there well the problem is is what happens is is i see this a lot with other people you know not just in the fly fishing world or anything like that but in general, people will watch the same movie over and over and over and over and over again, which I get it. It's <laughs> comforting. You know what's going to happen. Yeah, I'm, You like the actor or actress or whatever. So I'm bad for that. There's, uh, but yeah, I think um, around 5,500 movies in the United States alone are released every year on average. 
<laughs> and so if I just watch the same movie over and over again, I'm never even going to remotely make a dent in anything ever. <laughs> yeah, that's that's fair. I mean, like I Shawshank Redemption, I think I might have seen that more than once. Uh, maybe yeah no maybe that's a, a few. that's a classic or even you know that for some reason the jason Bourne movies i don't know why they just happen to be on all the time especially over the holidays at christmas and i just like oh let's watch this again you almost know, yeah, I, know every line you know exactly and, and those kind of movies i watch a lot of movies um because i like the the art of film because it's just so many people working like a one-man band but it's obviously everyone working together to create art. And I, I find that very fascinating. And so, um, and, and the cultural reference behind Hollywood that Hollywood puts out there. That's why when I say the tattoo knuckles, love and hate, so many people know that, but they don't know what it's from. People, mm-hmm. they'll say a certain reference. Like, I mean, it's a meme now, but when someone says, Oh my God, that's Jason Bourne. Everybody should know where that's from. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, that's a good, good point. Because it's, it's such a cultural culturally significant thing and so yeah. i mean watching certain movies i think um unlocks that when you especially when you're having conversations with new people or old friends yeah. or anything like that and so i plus the art of film is something i find very satisfying and then yeah like i was on an, i was on the wet fly swing podcast mm-hmm. and we were talking about uh deep Bay, which is they one flew over the cuckoo's nest was shot in salem Okay. Salem, Oregon. So they shot at the old uh, insane asylum mental hospital, you know, state hospital that was there in Salem. And then they also have a scene where they, they go out, they steal a boat out of Depot Bay, which is the world's smallest harbor. And it's a very iconic scene that they did there. And so it's, um, it, it, I just, I had never seen it, but I made a reference to it. And I went, oh, I got to, if I'm making reference to this movie, I got to watch it. <laughs> I'm sure, I'm sure Dave and you are fishing a lot of the same waters. I I have a lot of respect for Dave. He's such a good dude and, and has a great, a great show, uh, wet fly yeah. swing. Um, have you ever fished with Dave? You, you guys managed to get out yet? No, it's one of those things where, you know, he's a very busy guy, especially with a podcast with him doing it full time and turning it into a whole podcast network. Now it's, yeah. you know, it, it's hard to connect, but, um, hopefully 2024 should work out I'll, I'll invite a lot of i get a lot of people who want to go out on the jetty with me and so he's going to be hopefully one of those people who would come out and, and do that because it's a cool experience hmm. I, I love talking side hustles and jobs and i i got the feeling garrett that the uh organflytying.com is maybe more than just a side hustle it sounds like you're all in but but let's talk jobs um do you have a day job on top of this yeah so i work a day job. I work at Palm Harbor Homes as a sales coordinator there. I started off in the production facility as an electrician doing electrical work, and then I've just worked my way up into air conditioning, as I like to say. And so um, I, I work with different sales lots all around the West, um, and for a time, including Canada. Now we don't service Canada anymore. But yeah, so if anyone knows the place, it is if you're in Oregon and you drive down I-5, it's where the Beaver House is. And so um, most people know that. It's a very iconic thing. It's been there for 20-ish years. Um, and then the fun fact about it, it's the old Beaver logo at this point because when the house was originally built and they painted the logo on there, the school was more than happy to let us license it for a very nominal fee. This was, you know, 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. And then... 
uh, with the new logo, they thought, oh, we'll rebuild it, get it a new model, put a new beaver house there. That'd be kind of nice. And they reached out to the school and the school essentially said, well, it's going to cost a lot more to put our logo uh, on the side of one of your houses. And so they just said, well, then we'll just leave it. <laughs> but it's a fluorescent orange house with the old beaver logo on it. So anyone who drives up and down I-5 anywhere south of Salem will yeah. will recognize it. It's, it's pretty iconic. Did you ever work at anything prior to your current career that you kind of said, well, I, I don't really want to do that again? Or is there any jobs you've had maybe going through school or whatever that just you don't want anything to do with? I mean, I worked fast food. I, I worked Taco Bell. I was one of those guys. And, I mean, it's not a great job, including the fact you smell like a chalupa every night when you get off of work. So that wasn't great. Um and it's just, you know, it's not the most savory uh, co-workers in the world. Um, that was rough, but it's one of those, it's a job I did, you know, at the end of high school, right right before college kind of thing. So it was, mm-hmm. I did that, and then I worked at Home Depot. That was fine. It's just Home Depot. Um, and then cooler job is I did work um, at a fly shop for a summer just as a seasonal guy while all the other guys went off and go, went guiding. That was kind of nice. The shop is no longer in existence but um it was really cool as a young you know as an 18 19 year old kid to work at a fly shop for a summer yeah felt like i hit the jackpot um do you ever feel when you go in a fly shop now garrett that maybe you're drawing on some of that passion from the past you know you say you're hanging around sometimes you might actually have a seat and start uh you know chatting with the crew Oh yeah, no. It's there's something about a fly shop atmosphere that is very. It feels very old hardware store. Mm-hmm. If that if yeah. that makes sense at all, very like you chop it up with everybody. It's it's that kind of yeah vibe. And I think a good fly shop. I almost think you kind of want a fly shop to not be super clean and like perfect. You mm-hmm. almost want it to be like a little bit like weird, where you're like, why do they still have the carpet from the '90s in here? And <laughs> it does this door go anywhere? Like it's not a bathroom. It's not a back room. It's just a door. It's very, you know, hardware store kind of vibe. And if it's too clean and prim and proper and neat and tidy, it it almost feels like, I don't know, like a waiting room for a doctor's office. And that's, to me, that doesn't feel very welcoming. I want it to feel like you can just plop down and hang out. There's nothing Uh, sterile about a fly shop. We don't want that. Right. It's like, I mean, the way I would put it is there's nothing there's nothing sterile about a good fly shop. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I know exactly what you mean. I used to work in this one years ago in town here that uh, was built in the, I think, the 40s. And the floor was, if you put a ball on the floor, it would get, it would pick up some speed. There was nothing level in that shop. And it was kind of creaky wooden floors, but it, it somehow felt right. You know, I don't. Oh yeah, my one of my other favorite fly shops is in Sisters, Oregon, and the owner is Jeff Perrin, and I really like him. He's a great guy, and his fly shop feels like a house that they happen to turn into a fly shop. I mean, the as you said, the floor is uneven. It's three different types of materials: it's vinyl, it's hardwood, it's bare subfloor, it's carpet. Who knows? The walls are covered floor to ceiling with materials and bags and packs and rods and reels it feels like you're going to bump into everything and anything at any time. And it's great. <laughs> uh, love it. Um, oh yeah. Why do you think you spend all this time at the bench on the water? Like in your words, what does fly fishing fly tying, what does it do for you? 
So the first thing that's come to mind is I'm, I'm not a religious guy at all. So I, I, I'm not religious, but I would definitely argue that for something to be a spiritual experience, it has to be, there has to be some challenge, either physical, mental, emotional, something that you overcome. And that's how you get that spiritual feeling. That's how people feel that way when they play football, for example, or in the case of fly fishing, fly fishing is inherently challenging, including fly tying. I mean, the the joke with it is tying flies is as easy as skinning a grape with tweezers blindfolded while wearing oven mitts. I mean, it's very challenging inherently what you're doing. It's using delicate threads with delicate hooks to attach delicate materials in a, in a sophisticated way to mimic a bug, fish, crustacean, bird, frog, whatever you're, you're imitating kind of thing. And so there's that almost, uh, I don't want to say spiritual sounds a little, uh, you know, far-fetched and a little crazy, but it, it's definitely one of those things that's very calming because it puts you into the zone. It's, it's why I think if you watch, if you've seen the show, the bear, you look at something like that, where they work in a restaurant, like a high end dining restaurant and you go, how does anyone enjoy this? Where they're shouting at each other and, and things are crashing and falling and the, and the stakes are so high and all that stuff. How could anyone enjoy doing this work? And it's, I don't think they enjoy it because of all the stuff that we see from the outside. It's because it puts you into the flow, the flow state. I mean, mm-hmm. I joke about this with buddies who don't fish with me, uh, with, I, like I told my girlfriend who's coming with me to go fishing, she doesn't fish at all, but I told her when I'm fishing, I'm in fishing mode. I'm going to forget to eat. I'm going to forget you're there. I'm going to just be in fishing mode. And I kind of can get that way. And when I tie flies, I can just be in tying mode and it's a way to kind of shut down everything else. But, um, yeah, but what I'm doing at a time, it's a way to detach. It's, what essentially it puts you in that flow state, but it put, it allows you to just block out. It gives you that tunnel vision, but in, not in a, I don't say in a bad way. Cause it's not like when I go into fishing mode, if something really needed to happen, my girlfriend needed something or, or there was a, an event happening or she just wanted my attention. It's not like I'm going to be like, no, go away <laughs> yeah. and kick her to the curb kind of thing. It's more so that it's just when I can, I like to be in it. And, um, and honestly, for whatever reason it has, it it tickles my creative outlet too. So as far as creativity goes, I, I mean, I'm not a painter. I'm not, I don't draw, I'm not a sculptor in a sense of like, you know, using clay or chiseling out marble. I don't, I write a little bit, but I don't sing. I don't play an instrument. So I think every person out there has a creative outlet. And I think if you don't think you do, you just haven't found it yet mm-hmm. because I mean, I like the fly, I like the conventional fishing stuff and getting into bass fishing. I got pretty good at it, but it didn't have the creative outlet. It just had the outdoor outlet. Yeah. Yeah. I get and that. so something with tying the fly, cause it's not, it's not like I'm sitting at my desk all day coming up with new patterns. I'm not like an Albert Einstein in that sense. And, it, but it's not like, but there's something about creating something. It's, I think it's kind of similar to like how guys get really into woodworking or you see it with like archery. People get really into fletching. Mm-hmm. It's that extra element where you can put your own 
spin on it, your own style. I mean, I tie a hare's ear or I tie a pheasant tail or a parachute atoms or whatever fly in the world differently than every other person on the planet. I mean, it may be very similar, mm-hmm. but it is still different. Like a lot of guys I hang out with in the fly fishing world, especially in Oregon, do either full dress Atlantic salmon fly style fly tying or they're doing classic spay and D flies for a steelhead. Mm-hmm. And most of those guys aren't coming up with brand new patterns. They're just tying traditional patterns again, but they're putting their own style still on it. I mean, I mentioned my friend Garen who does the woven bodies. I mean, he's still tying a green butt skunk, but it's being tied differently than every other green butt skunk ever has been tied. I have a friend, uh, Steven Fernandez out of Los Angeles, and he ties wings on his steelhead and salmon flies that are different than every, everyone else on the planet. And the, you know, or someone like Dave McNeese, who's a who's a local legend around here. He ties his flies iconically. I, if I saw his flies sitting in a fly box mixed in with other flies, I could pick his out immediately. Yeah, yeah. Even that, though they may be the same patterns as someone else. Do you find that if you sell some to a friend, or even if you give a few patterns to a buddy, and and I find this with people that don't tie. But like for instance, my 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 best fishing buddy, I'll give him a bunch of patterns, and then he'll have he'll say I was using this. I'm like, well, I tied that one. Like you know somehow, and I don't even know how to describe it. But if you spent time at the bench making that fly, you can usually pick it out. Oh oh yeah, it's just like, well, look at it like paintings. People can tell the difference between a Monet or a Rembrandt or a Van Gogh, and they may be. I mean, I'm not an art guy so who knows if they're similar but let's just say they are similar but people can tell almost immediately yeah i mean even the counterfeits you know oh this counterfeit is trying to be this specific style and it's even though it's the same you know bowl of fruit on a table it's very much Mm -hmm. in that person's style um and it's I mean, it's, yeah, as you said, it's very recognizable. I mean, I have a buddy who ties, you know, Garen, my friend who ties flies, he sold a few fly boxes and sometimes someone will post them on social media. Like, Oh, I just got my flies and caught fish at them. And without seeing that he was tagged or the person saying, I got them from this guy, I can go, Oh, those look super familiar. Are those, Mm -hmm. Oh, yep. They sure are. It's yeah. Everyone is very, every fly tire has their, their fingerprint on it without having to sign their name on every fly. Yeah, that's well said. We've got Garrett Lesko on the line out of Lebanon, Oregon. Uh, he's with OregonFlyTying.com. Look him up. Now, I, w- I want to do a deep dive into your into your business, into your side hustle, man, because I know you, yeah. you, you got a lot of, uh, let's call them tying symposium type things coming up. You got a busy winter. It sounds like you're going to be at the fly fishing show in, uh, in Washington, uh, coming up in what's that? That's in February. Um, yeah. and then you, you don't, you have a, isn't there another expo you got coming up? We mentioned at the top of the show. Where, where was that one again? That one's in Albany, Oregon. And that's the Northwest expo. Okay. Got it. That, that sounds like something I'd like to go to. Cause I've, you know, in full honesty, I've only ever gone to fly fishing shows that tying was, you know, tying's a big part of them. But I think as a tire, if you go to a fly tying show, it's probably just another level. Is, is that your experience? 
Absolutely. The way it's been described to me is the fly fishing show is a fly fishing show that happens to have fly tires at it, where the the Northwest Expo is a fly tying show that happens to have fly fishing at it. Love it. Um, is the best way to describe it. So there's going to be fly shops there that are going to be selling stuff. Uh, fly Tires Dungeon, if anyone knows them, they'll come out. Hairline comes to this one and sells Keo Hackles. There'll be a casting pond, a fishing simulator. There'll be classes and workshops. There'll be uh, women's groups, uh, Project Healing Waters groups. Yeah. Tons of stuff there, just like any other show. But it's less... I don't want to say like a trade show, but you're not going to see big brands there. Loon's not going to be there. Folding Mill's not going to be there. Um, Sims isn't going to be there. That's not going to be at the Northwest Expo. It's going to be more so at the Fly Fishing Show. But if you're looking to see a lot of fly tires, it's approximately 200 different fly tires over the course of two days. Wow. So it's really a lot of different fly tires from every type of discipline you're after. So I do the deer hair stuff there. But you might see a guy doing saltwater stuff or tarpon. You might see a guy doing bonefish flies, uh, full-dress Atlantic salmon flies, steelhead flies, trout flies, bass flies, carp flies, euro nymphs, lake flies, um, hyper-realistic flies. There's a guy from Canada, that, not Canada, Washington, that I really like. His name is Jackson Leong, and he ties hyper, 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 hyper-realistic flies hmm. that look identical to butterflies or walking sticks or spiders or beetles. I mean, cool. it looks like he's taxidermied a black widow spider, <laughs> but it's made out of rabbit fur and porcupine quills. That's really cool. That's, that's dedication. Yeah. I, I don't know that I, a lot of times would fish a lot of those things, but it's really cool when you see it. Like I, I yeah. remember like a, a mayfly that made the cover of, uh, you know, fly tying magazine or something sometime back. No, it was a stonefly actually. Now it comes to mind, but it was like that thing looked real, but it, it, it also, it didn't have a lot of movement. I'm sure, you know, like you look at it and you yeah. go, wow, that looks, and th that's that whole realistic versus suggestive patterns that I find fascinating because sometimes great tires, sometimes you, you don't need to be a great tire to catch fish with your flies. You know what I mean? Like if you can suggest a size, a color, a specific insect, it's usually good enough. Oh, oh yeah. And so like, for example, I host the, um, the fly tying night that our fly fishing, our local fly fishing club puts on. So once a month, it's open to all the club members to come and tie flies with me. Uh, once a month and we focus on a specific pattern but no one has to tie that fly we just it's just for the club so they have flies for the next outing we go on kind of thing and um, what I tell people there is if the goal is just to catch a fish which my least favorite phrase in fly fishing fly tying is hey at least I'll catch fish which drives me crazy because if the point is just to catch fish we can go dig up some worms right now. <laughs> that That's not, the point isn't to catch fish. And I think hunters really get this, really hammer this home, I think a lot better than fly from, from anglers. But um, if you just want to shoot a deer to fill the freezer or uh, kill a deer to fill the freezer, go get a rifle. Cause you can be hundreds of yards away and take, you know, take care of that. But if you want to hunt an animal and really get into it, you get the bow and arrow out. And I think the same thing applies to fly fishing, where if you just want to fill the freezer full of 
steelhead salmon, rockfish, trout, whatever. I mean, power bait works exceptionally well. And But if you want to hunt a fish, if you want to trick a fish, if you want to if you want that fish to eat your fly like it thinks it's the real thing, then it comes down to fly tying, in my opinion, and tying the fly well. Yeah. And I think that's – and I get why people do it. People say, oh, at least I'll catch fish because they don't want to hurt someone's feeling with a bad fly. And I have definitely learned that when I was younger. I was the guy who would try to offer helpful, positive, constructive criticism – on Facebook or Instagram. And I've learned not to do that at all. Um, it's not the time nor the place, no matter where it's at. I mean, I'll see him on a, like I see a Reddit post and someone will say, what did I, this is my first fly. What can I do to improve? <laughs> yeah. I and, see that a lot. <laughs> and it's just like the, the yeah. answer is if you're going to respond to that post at all, which I really think no one should, which it, what it should be done is that person should go into a fly shop or they should go talk to a buddy and get a face-to-face interaction with that with yeah, that yeah but if they really have to respond to that what you need to improve is practice <laughs> that's it well right and i i've and especially i mean i'm in some 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 facebook groups that are really good because they're very welcoming and nobody you know if anybody says anything a little crazy it gets deleted pretty quick but I know exactly that feeling you mean when somebody says, this is my first fly. What do you think? And you're like, oh, you're opening up a whole can of worms there. But I'm just going to say, keep up the good work. Right. It's like, yeah, I don't know what's the worst post. The post when someone's trying to sell a pair of hatch nippers for $80 on one of those buy, sell trade groups. Or if someone says, this is my first fly, what do I need to do? Yeah. Those two posts are probably the two, I don't know. Closest to a hornet's nest without actually being a hornet's nest kind of post. I mean, yeah, yeah. it's uh, th- those I, two things. I've never seen something people will rip that poor guy sh- to shreds because yeah. he's trying to sell a pair of nippers for $80. And the guy who just wanted some positive feedback on his first fly is now getting a whole fly tying lesson in the comments. And it's just like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, pump the brakes, everybody. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, it, it's so true. I, I love the fact you said that. Good stuff. And social media, I do struggle with that sometimes. Like I, I, when you're looking at somebody that's been tying a long time, you know, there's the little things like the. Um, for me, it's the symmetry of the fly. Like the the um, what's the word I'm looking for? Like the dimensions of it. You know, the tail versus the size of the, the proportions. Thank you. That's the word I was looking for. The yeah. their proportion are, are they're correct. And also the head. Look at the head on a fly. You can tell if somebody just kind of is still trying to figure out a whip finish and they just keep, you know, the, the head gets all bulked out. And um, a seasoned tire, you don't usually see that. So, it, No, that's a great point. The head, the head of the fly is a really good indicator. Um, and then the other thing, <laughs> you made a good point. Um, but if you really want to humble yourself as a fly tire and you really want to go from a good fly tire to a great fly tire. Like you're ready to take on that self, I don't know, critical um, approach and really analyze your flies, get your flies, either do it yourself or take them to a buddy who has a macro camera. Mm -hmm. And I mean, really macro Hmm. and take some pictures of that fly and you will be humbled immediately. Yeah. I mean, I've tied flies that I thought looked Perfect. I mean, perfect. Everything's the proportions are right. The thread is stacked perfectly. The head is super neat. The 
the varnish on on the head is perfectly smooth i don't see a single air bubble everything is cut right it looks great and then i get a macro picture of it and i go you know what i'm terrible what am i doing here yeah yeah just because that it oh you can't hide any sins from the from the macro lens which is which doesn't mean that you're bad it just allows you to reanalyze certain things if you really want to go from good to great as far as fly tying again the other line i hate is the fish don't care which it's true they don't i mean you can you're catching flies on paradigon you're catching fish on paradigons Mm -hmm. it's clearly you can catch them on whatever you want but it's less for you it's less for the fish and more for you it's more you know are you tying the best fly you can tie or are you just doing it to to fill the empty slots in the box so you can just get and go fishing which there's no problem with that then it's just it's just what what are your goals mm-hmm. i guess what it really comes down to are, are you a perfectionist in most everything you do you seem like that might be part of your dna uh, it's not i think i have a lot of things i'm very organized in the sense that that is very pleasing to how my it doesn't reduce anxiety it just doesn't build it it's very calming i i joke with people i think when I get a new order of materials in to fill, to restock where I need to restock materials, one of my favorite things is putting those away. It's it's not even the tying of the fly. The tying of the fly is always, it's always fun. But putting those materials away, putting them in a specific spot mm-hmm. is great. I love filling a fly box. That's what I've really got into, and I found a lot of satisfaction with that. I have a coronamid box that I filled up, and it's not even for me. It's just I filled it up because I was just... I didn't know what else to do with the flies. And so that's a, that's, I don't hardly ever stock flies to sell. And this is like one of the one times I have done that. Hmm. Um, so I'll sell the whole box. It's a whole tacky box. So it's yeah. 336 coronamids of every single type. And so that's all my social media. If anyone wants to go check it out, but um, yeah, there's something about lining everything up. At every fly fishing competition I've done and every time I've hung, fished with other people or gone to clubs and spoke or anything, everyone wants to see my fly boxes. Because if you go to my social media, you'll see everything lined up in a row, two size, perfectly spaced in a very specific order. And it's something that just is very pleasing. Like today, mm-hmm. uh, it's the day before the Thanksgiving weekend. So we're, I'm not going to work for another four days now. But before I left my desk, I put every, all the papers where they need to be, all the pens where they need to be. I mean, they're not organized inside the pen cup. I'm not that crazy, but they're all in my pen cup kind of thing. Or yeah. Yeah. Um, trying to think of other stuff. Uh, when I had a tool bag, when I worked more blue collar doing electrical work, I mean, I didn't care if my bag got just messed up during the day. But before I started the work day, I'd always organize it to be as neat as possible. Hmm. And there's something about that process Um it's a term in model building. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with this, but it's called it's called knolling. K n o l l i n g. No. Knolling. Don't know it. And it's essentially when you before you build your model, and it's really easy to do it with like Legos because Legos are a super accessible model for everybody. But what you do is instead of just opening the packages as you go and getting the pieces out to build your model, you find a surface that you're going to work on clear it and then you open up every single package and you you place every single item perpendicular to each other on the table so it's all laid out in front of you by like kinds Hmm. so it's all visually there 
So that way, when you read the directions or follow the procedure or whatever it may be, you can grab everything specifically. You see it a lot in like, like surgery, like doctors will do it before a surgery, all their scalpels and forceps, everything is all lined up very specifically. Um, Construction Hmm. workers do that with their van tradesmen. So a plumber and HVAC guy, their van is laid out very specifically. So everything's where it's supposed to be. And there's like a, almost a meditative process to doing that. And yeah, so that makes sense. when I, when I fill my fly boxes, I fill them in that way, not just because it looks pretty and it's aesthetic and people like the pictures on Instagram or anything, but it allows me to look at a fly box and go, I know exactly what's in here. <laughs> just before I called you tonight, I, I had one nice piece of halibut that my buddy gave me that he caught and basically flash froze out in the ocean. And, uh, I, I, it had fennel seed and sage from the garden, uh, and all these. Anyway, I do that when I'm cooking is where I'm going with this. It's like, if I don't lay it out, I'm just scrambling for ingredients and I'm like, oh crap, I gotta be doing this. Cause I'm kind of cooking as I'm reading the recipe. But it, when you, it's same thing, you know, when you lay out the ingredients you have, just like on a cooking show or something, there's some prep involved. It does make things easier. Right. The, as they say in cooking, the mise en place, the, the prep work, getting everything together. There's something about that. As I said, Thanksgiving's tomorrow. And to be able to do a Thanksgiving meal, Mm -hmm. um, you can't just start randomly grabbing things out of the refrigerator as you're going through it. It is a systematic way of proceeding through that event because if you don't, nothing's going to be ready at the same time. Things aren't going to get finished. It becomes a complete mess. And there's something about the prep process that I find very calming and very satisfying. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously the tying of the fly is satisfying. I don't want to take, I don't want to make that seem like I just love organizing threads um, or some, or all my glues or all my UV resin that that's fine and, and stuff, but the tying of the fly is satisfying. It's the accomplishment of doing that. And that prep work, again, you see it with like plating. I mentioned like high, high stakes, um, high-end restaurants, every plate has to look a specific way. There's a specific way of presenting it. Mm-hmm. Not because if you do it a different way, someone's going to go to jail or something. It's just that is the vision of the head chef, and that's what they want it to look like, and that's how they want to present it because they feel like that showcases all the right stuff. And I think with when I see a fly box, and it's not like I see it and I go, oh, my gosh, how does someone do that? Where, like, I see someone opens a fly box and they have every fly they've ever bought, bought or tied ever in one fly box. Mm-hmm. So they got dry flies with nymphs, with streamers, with worms, with eggs, with yeah. indicators, with whatever, all mixed into the same box. I don't look at that and go, oh, how, how do they live like that? That, mu- that must be how they do it. And that's fine. <laughs> I have no issue with that. It's just not how I would do it. And yeah. Again, it's it's less. I don't want to. I don't know. There's something with my brain. The whole idea of the organizing is very satisfying. Yeah, that's cool. I I need to do better at that because I and I know too because I have fished a few times with competitive fly fishers. You need to be organized, right? Like time is of the essence. You, if you are looking in your dragonfly box or your damsel box or your crony box it needs to be organized. You need to know where you're going. Right. And it, uh, it, it it's going to end up being better in the result department. Oh, oh yeah. And it, it's, th- their stuff is, is 
saving seconds to save minutes to save hours kind of thing. I mean, the big thing that's coming back into the that the competitive anglers are going to start bringing back to the non-competitive world is the semi-automatic reel, which I think is doesn't have a lot of application in in casual fly fishing, but for them it's it's a huge deal. It's a big deal for them. So, I mean, I think they're a little gimmicky. I don't know. That's just me. But the guys who use them who actually compete, like I have a friend named Zach who competes here in Oregon, and he got one, and he, he really likes it. It saves him a ton of time. Hmm. But yeah, that's, it's, just not, it's just not for me. <laughs> I, I like to keep them on as long as I can. <laughs> well, it, just... the thing is, is a semi-automatic reel isn't for bringing the fish in. It's just for retrieving slack. I okay, so I know I have no clue what you're talking about. So what? what... Okay, so uh, to get into the weeds a little bit on this, a semi-automatic reel doesn't have a crank like a normal reel. It doesn't have a, a handle. Right. Okay. So what it has is it has a lever that sticks out towards the tip of the fly rod, okay. and what you do is before you go fishing that day, you pre-wind a. This is why it's called semi-automatic. You have to wind the reel before you start fishing, and what that does is it it compresses a spring that that will spin the spool inside the real housing hmm. um, when you pull that lever and so what you do is every time you pull line off and when you crank the little dial you are priming the reel and so that way when you pull off all your all the line you need you're fishing you're fishing you hook the fish in the river you can hit the lever all your slack is pulled up to the reel and you don't have to worry about slack by your feet or by your pack or by your belt or anything like that all your slack pulls up and then you strip the fish in and then it has a drag system just like any other reel and right. then you would palm it to slow it. Huh. Um, but it doesn't have a handle like a normal reel. I mean, some of them might, but th- the concept is that you don't reel the fish in like a normal uh, fly yeah. reel. Yeah. You're just stripping the fish in and then using the lever on it as a slack yeah. control system. Okay. I do have one reel... I forget the name of the company, but it spins super fast and you can really like, uh, so that's a multiplier. Yeah. Yeah. And I, honestly, I don't like it that much to be honest with you. I, I don't know why, but it, uh, it, it was a little gimmicky. It's it super rare in fly fishing, super, super, super rare in fly fishing. The only time I've ever really seen them is for steelhead guys, hmm. because what they'll do is they'll, especially swinging, what they'll do is they'll swing this you know, a hundred foot cast, a hunt, you know, the whole fly line goes out kind of thing. Right. Then they hook a fish and it starts taking line and now it's into your backing. And to do that as a one-to-one ratio is, would take forever. That's why the swinging guys use such big, large Arbor reels is because they're taking up more line when they do that. But a multiplier reel, like you see with spinning rods or bait casters or anything like that, those are all multipliers because the spool is so tiny and they have room for all the gears and a fly reel, there's usually not enough room for gears to multiply it. But if you have 150 feet of line out, that'll take forever to pull back on a six inch spool. So you, you get a multiplier to do it. But again, they're super rare. I mean, I've seen them one or two times in my life. I, I, they're just not super common now. Yeah. Um, nowadays it just, it just boggles my mind how, how specific our fly fishing can be. Um, I want to talk about your business. Are you sitting in your time room right now? Yeah, so I'm sitting at my desk right now. I, I mean, I live in a small apartment, so my time room is also my kitchen, living room, den, yeah. dining room. You know, it's it's everything. It's all one room. 
My so, bedroom is separate, but everything else is, is did, all combined. Did Was it hard for you to secure OregonFlyTying.com? Because I wouldn't imagine that would be a real easy uh, one to, to get. Uh, I, that was that was pure luck. Really? <laughs> yeah, I got very lucky. Um, I had a website called The Stickfish, um, which was just a blog that I had. But um, my friend Darren, who does website work, we were just looking for a website to have together because he does a lot of photography and I do a lot of writing. And so we kind of wanted a place where we could dump pictures and we could dump writing. Um so we were looking for a, a URL and a name and we got Oregon fly time was available. So I went, all right, well, hmm. we've got to take it. Yeah, no, for sure. And so we took it. And so that's what we've had for a while. And it's a good URL to have, obviously. I mean, I don't know if it's as good as Oregon fly fishing, but it is, it's up there. Well, what made you start this, this business? Uh, I mean, did you just, you know, love the tying so much you thought, Hey, I'm, I'm going to see if I can make a go at this or what kind of, what was the motivating factor in that? So the big deal was, so I tie a lot of flies and, um, and so I wanted to be able to sell the flies. And I was talking to someone literally today about this at work. One of my motivations was, I think it was like January, maybe December of, uh, so December of 2019, January of 2020, my goal of 2020 was to like really double down and really get into destination fly time because I had done a little bit of it. And I thought this is a service I could definitely provide because there is, because there's just, there's no fly shops on Christmas Island. There's no fly shops in Mongolia. There, and then the fly shops here in the States aren't carrying time and flies or GT flies or Dorado flies. They just, they really don't. Why would a fly shop in sisters oregon or albany oregon carry flies for peacock bass like it's just not a thing and so that was my plan early 2020 and then we all know what happened covid hit and then no one was traveling at all so i kind of let that go but then it kind of spun off into well i can do zoom presentations for clubs because there's no um there's no expos or shows happening so if a club wants a speaker, a Zoom presentation is a great way to do it because I don't have to drive. I don't have to fly. They don't have to put me up in a hotel or let me crash in their guest room. They don't have to do any of that. They can just Zoom me in. So I did that. And then the fly time thing was what it really comes down to is I can only carry so many flies when I go fishing and I still love to tie. So a great way to tie, a great way, a great excuse to tie more flies is the time for other people. So I just kind of do stuff to order. I like sharing stuff like, like that's why I'm on this podcast. I love sharing about fly fishing. I love talking about fly fishing. I love mm -hmm. doing all this kind of stuff. So I do stuff to order. I don't usually, I don't, as I said, I don't stock flies. It's very rare. This one box that I have is kind of it's one box, but um, I just kind of do it as a, as a way to, to um, support the hobby addiction, whatever you want to call it. It's just, I do a lot of it. And so I got to be, able, I have to be able to support it in a way or justify it, I guess is a better way to put it. Yeah. Um, but even if I didn't sell flies, I'd still probably tie as much as I do. I just really like doing it. Are, are you um, sponsored by anybody? Like, is there any companies that you kind of are associated with that, you know, whether it's hook companies or thread companies or bead companies? So I get all my, I don't say all of them because I don't, but a lot of my trout hooks, 
I'm buying overseas by the thousand. So I'm buying a thousand hook units. Um, and that's one size, one style, a thousand of them. Uh, just because I go through so many hooks, obviously. And then I'm doing the same thing for our specifically tungsten beads, slotted tungsten. Hmm. It makes them significantly more affordable than buying them either retail or even wholesale. So I have some wholesale accounts with people because I commercially tie. But as far as being a rep, you know, somebody it's up Avon. I'm a fly tying consultant with up Avon. They're a uh, fly tying manufacturer and distributor out of up Avon, England. And they do stuff like if ever, probably their most famous thing that most people know them from is they sell the foam blocks that you can use the uh, mandrels you can load into like a cordless drill and cut cylinders out of. Right. So like boobies or mm-hmm. bionic ants, things like that. And so that's kind of what put them on the map, but they have tons of other materials. They have body material. They have hmm. um, so like straggle hackle stuff for like buggers and leeches. They have blob material. They have different types of foams. They have, um just tons and tons and tons of different stuff that they they carry um and they are only carried out of england so if you're a fly shop owner or you work at a fly shop or you're just a customer of a fly shop that really likes uh european british kind of based materials mm-hmm. and just harass your fly shop owner to bring them in if you want otherwise you can buy directly from up Haven. they have a you know, business to consumer website as well. And so you can buy stuff from them directly, hmm. but that would be it. Otherwise I buy a lot of materials from hairline hairlines based out of Oregon. Um, so as a commercial tire, I buy through them. I buy through Semperfly. Um, what about your hooks? You mentioned, you, you know, like thousand hooks at a time. That's a lot of hooks, but is there a specific brand that you have as a preference? So it depends on what I'm going for. So saltwater stuff, it's going to be Gamagatsu mm-hmm. um, or or A-Rex. I, I like those. A-Rex has a great lineup of hooks from trout to pike to GTs to peacocks, whatever it is. So um, I'm tying some flies for a guy who's going to Bolivia. That's the current order I have on deck. He's going to Bolivia uh, for Dorado. Nice. And so I'm tying him some rat flies and mice flies. And those are going to be tied on A-Rex hooks. But um, I'll either tie in Gamagatsu or A-Rex for kind of big game stuff mm-hmm. for trout. It just depends on the hook shape. Right. Um, so the hooks I buy, um, in the thousand, they're going to be kind of similar to like a Dehiku 302 or a Firehole 633 or mm-hmm. something like that. Um, I buy a lot of Firehole hooks. I buy a lot of fully mill hooks. Um, I'm trying to, I usually try to look for hooks with the best value. So for example, a hook brand that I don't buy not because I think they're a bad hook by any stretch of the imagination. I actually think they're a very good hook uh, are Umpqua branded hooks. So TMCO or Umpqua hooks. Mm-hmm. Um, I think those are really good hooks. They're just, I have very, very few of them because they're very expensive per hook price. When you tie in the volume I do, I don't really look at the price tag of the box of hooks or the container of hooks, the baggie of hooks. Right. I'm looking at the per hook price. So sure. price per unit. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I'm trying to look at that to get it as low as possible because your biggest overhead when it comes to tying flies um, is going to be your hook and your bead if you have a bead or hook and your weight. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, tungsten beads retail can be as much as 40, 50 cents a bead, which doesn't seem like a lot 
until you're trying to fill a box full of six, uh, 336 flies. Yeah. And then that is $165 just in the beads alone. Yeah. The price of tungsten beads for the, in, it, it amazes me actually how much they are. I did a, I did a blog post about it and I do think they have their value. Um, which is interesting because I will see if I can pull it up real quick, but so I can get the exact numbers for people, but um, tungsten is incredibly dense. And so we measure density based on uh, cubic centimeters, grams per cubic centimeters. And so to give an idea, brass is just under nine grams per cubic centimeter, where tungsten is just under 20 grams per cubic centimeter. So tungsten is hmm. double the weight of brass, you know, double and some the weight of brass. So yeah, they may be twice or even three or four times as much as brass, but you're getting twice and a little bit more uh, density, mm-hmm. which makes them a more efficient fly. And it's part of the reason why competitive anglers use them is because it's an efficiency thing. No, for sure. I mean, I can accomplish the same thing with brass and lead, but it's not as an efficient fly as just using a tungsten bead. Yeah, no, I, 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 I'm a huge believer in it. I just find that, uh, I mean, I'm just tying for myself. I'm not selling what I tie, but, um, yeah. you know, so I'm, I'm, I'm going to use them. But I would imagine if you're doing it to scale, you know, uh, tungsten, knowing the fact that there's a tungsten bead on there, it's, it's going to be, let's say, more of a quality product. You're going to get, you're going to sink, your sink rate's going to be faster. You're going to get in the zone quicker. Um, you know, uh, especially if you're fishing chronomids, I, I can't believe the difference it makes going from like a brass or even a ceramic bead to a, to a tungsten bead. It's night and day. Oh, oh yeah. And so this is, I, I talked about this in the last time I talked Stillwater, one of the clubs, one of the things that really helped me understand why are there so many like different sinking lines in Stillwater fishing? Like, why do you need a half inch, a one inch, one and a half, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, you know, inches per second sinking lines. And when you think about it sinking at only one inch per second more than the neck. So like I have a fast intermediate that I love from airflow. And if I go to the type three one, most people would think, why would I want a line that sinks at one inch faster than the last line I just put on? That seems insignificant. It's only an inch faster, but it's not, I don't look at it like an inch faster. It is 50% faster. And if you think about with tungsten on a coronamid, if it's more than twice the weight of a brass bead, you're getting 100% increase to your sink rate, which if anyone plays video games at all, or does any kind of like strategic games, you don't see that in that because it's too overpowered. You're not going to see like health regeneration at a hundred percent, you're going to see it at like 8% because otherwise it's just too overpowered. And in the sense of tungsten is you can, that means that fly is theoretically getting to the depth in half the time as another fly, um, that a brass fly would be. So that means you could catch fish twice as quickly. I mean, this is how competitors look at it, but if you're just trying to catch as many fish in a day, which I think that's the goal for most fly anglers is to catch a lot of fish. You know, otherwise, why are we going? Um, because the numbers hopefully equal the more fish you catch, the higher percentage chance you do of catching a big fish. 
Yeah. Right. And exactly. That's it. That is, ex- you just summed up my fishing. Like I, I don't mind catching a lot of smaller ones. If you know, there's a chance at a bigger one. I think it is a percentage that a numbers game at some point. So yeah, when you look at it like that, when you look at it like um, a game or you try to gamify why things sink at certain rates, don't look at it like, oh, this is one inch faster. Because in your head, everyone knows what an inch is. It's, you know, two and a half centimeters. It's mm-hmm. it's not that much. But think of it in the sense that it's 50% faster. So that means you could sink, you're, you're fishing your flies 50% deeper. It means you're getting your flies to the strike zone 50% quicker. It's all those kind of things. And 50% is a lot. I mean, mm-hmm. if I got a 50% raise at work or anyone did, you'd, you'd lose your mind. <laughs> So think of it like that is it's not in percentages, you know, speaking to the audience. Think of I love the way you verbalize. I love the way you verbalize some of those things. Um, I do talk to a lot of tires. I don't talk to that many commercial tires. I mean, we've had a few on the show for sure, but um, just the way you're thinking about tying in general, I find fascinating. Um, It's good stuff. Enjoying it. Let's talk about the main tool in your tying, your vice. What, What do you like to tie on? So I've tied on a lot of different uh, vices. Um, currently, right now, I run a Regal Revolution. I think that's what it is. Yeah, Regal Revolution, mm-hmm. the, the top-end Regal, um, and it's a workhorse. I think, from my understanding, I think almost every commercial tying outfit overseas is running some kind of Regal or a Regal knockoff-style vice because it is. you don't have to worry about tensioning. You can just open, close, open, close, open, close. It's very quick. Hmm. And so I really like that. It's not a true rotary, um, which sometimes I miss. There's every once in a while, I'm like, man, I wish I had that. I wish I was back to time on my rotary. But I, uh, when I go to expos and shows, and I'm going to be at the ones in February and March that we've mentioned, those two uh, shows, when I'm tying deer hair flies, I will use a peak vise, um, but I use a special jaw on the peak vise. I use what they call a large iron retention vice. Um, so the difference between that vice and anything else, instead of pinching the hook between two metal jaws, it is a hook and clamp jaw. So I actually have to thread my hook through an eyelet and then I crank that eyelet down and that's how I hold my hook in the vice. It's, it's a really unique setup. If anyone looks it up, it's the peak L-I-R-S vice or large iron retention vice. It's very unique. It's very specialized. It's only really for tying deer hair flies or like big articulated streamers. Hmm. Um, when I ho- put a hook in there, it doesn't matter how big the hook is. It has to be a big hook. I'm not tying size 20s on here or even probably size 4s in this vice. You probably need a size 2 at the very smallest. Right. Um, but I can carry around that vice all day on that hook without the hook slipping, um, until the hook breaks, Hmm. that vice will lock that hook in forever. So those are probably my two main vices, but I have a standard peak with standard jaws. I have a Dyna King that I like. I, one of my first, I tied on a Thompson. That was my first vice. And then I got a, I got a Dan vice. It's a Danish vice, which is half metal, half graphite, I believe. It's a great budget vice. It's like a hundred bucks, I think. Maybe it was even less. At the, it might have been eighty bucks at the time. And at that time, I thought I was getting the height of luxury of fly tying vices because it was a full rotary vice. Um, 
But then I also modified my Regal that I tie 90% of my flies on. I modified that with a CE Tech fly base. So that's an that's an aftermarket fly ba- uh, fly tying vice base for a pedestal vice that I use, and it's awesome. I've been nothing but pleased with it. Hmm. You're taking it to new levels here, my friend. I, I appreciate it. I, I love talking tying, and it's rare that I get so many good tidbits. Um, it's funny that you classified a vice though as the most important tool because if you would have asked me, I would have said thread. Thread is for me is the most important tool. That's fair. Let, well, let's talk about that. What, what? Yeah, I especially on small patterns for me. I know it sounds like you're not exactly in love with Kevlar, so we'll leave that one alone. But um, <laughs> are you are you a UTC guy? Are you a uh, throw throw the brands out there? What what do you like to tie on? So most of my thread is either going to be Semperfly, um, not the Nano Silk. I know everyone loves the Nano Silk, and I'll get into why I'm not. I don't use nano silk 24 um, seven or Vivas Vivas and Semperfly are the top two uh, threads. I like um, we could do a whole nother podcast on thread and maybe that's something we do in the future. But right Love now, it. Love it. The, what it comes down is I like using a, uh, a flat thread and I like using a waxed thread. Yeah. Um, there's two, you can classify threads in two different camps. Um, you can classify them a million ways, but there's flat thread and there's round thread. So uni thread, um, and then Viva 60 and Viva 160 are all round threads. So that means they are twisted and st- and they can never be flattened. They can never be counterspun and flattened out. Where Semperfly threads, um, all other sizes of Vivas, Danville, UTC. TechStream, Montana Fly Company, whatever thread out there, all those are going to be flat threads. And the reason why I like a flat thread and a pre-wax thread um, is one, the wax means that the, the thread's not not slippery like GSP is. So nano silk and GSP are the same thing. They're just a gel spun polymer thread, which is very, very slippery, but very strong. Um, I like a flat thread because I like flattening my thread to create a really smooth underbody. I think it creates a much better fly. And then I like a, uh, a wax thread. Like I said, a wax nylon instead of a gel spun polymer because it doesn't, my material doesn't slip around. I have much more control over my materials. Yeah. Well, I can remember I, I, I tied so long ago, a lot of the thread wasn't waxed and I had to buy the wax and I had to wax the, the thread and that was a pain in the butt. I tell anyone I ever tie flies with or when I'm hosting my fly tying um, nights with the club or if I'm teaching a fly fish, a fly tying class at all or anything, you that is one material that you do not need anymore in the 21st century is wax. I mean, there are very, very few applications, but there are applications where wax is necessary. But for most people with most tying, as long as you're using a wax nylon, a classic wax nylon thread, so that can be UTC, Danville, Vivas, Semperfly, then you don't you don't need wax already. It's already been waxed. The threads that aren't waxed, the only thread that's not waxed out there is some Danvilles and Uni thread. Uni thread is not waxed. Yeah, that's I... why you, when you see Davy McPhail tie flies, he's always waxing his thread. <laughs> it's because he has to. Yeah, yeah. 
You're bang on. And I honestly, and I don't like slamming brands, but I hate Unithread. I've always hated it. I hate the fact that it's round. And and that's I'm a big UTC guy. I love the colors they have. I just I like it. And I've had, I've got Semperfly. I like that too. I just find that the UTC for me personally, I got all these different colors, especially when it comes to chronomids and you can do your thread blending. There's just and it lays so damn flat. And it, it So like, yeah, UTC is definitely the flattest of all the threads. But what that does is, and I'm sure you've noticed this, is when you when you separate all your threads. So when it's every time you you wrap around a hook, it puts one clockwise twist in your thread, and it starts to cord it. Um, when and that what that does is it means when you add tension to that thread, you're you're adding tension to all the individual threads with that make up that denier thread when it's corded. When you flatten it, it means you can apply all the pressure individually to all those individual strands within that thread. And so what people really run into uh, with UTC thread, one of the problems I've seen is if you don't have a really nice bobbin, so it has something that can the thread can catch on, or if you have a lead hand, you can just snap that thread almost without even thinking. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, UTC tends to be really fragile for whatever reason. And when I say for whatever reason, the reason I believe it's, it's it tends to be fragile for a lot of tires is because when you flatten it, which is really great, it gets super, super flat. As you said, it's great for blending, like doing like a brown and red or like a, mm-hmm. a green and red coronamid. It's great for stuff like that. But what happens is, is, is that when you, when you're pulling your force down on individual strings, strands of that 70 let's say denier thread Mm -hmm. it makes it really easy to just break and then it acts as like almost a domino effect because once you break one and then you have even less strength and then you break more and more and more and all of a sudden the whole thing just goes and so i have found and then my other issue with utc is is color dyeing tends to be very inconsistent yeah that's just yeah you're not just my personal take on it i have found that semperfly and Vivas are very consistent, well-spooled thread. I also kind of forgot that I'm talking to a guy that spends a lot of time with deer hair. So <laughs> I will, t- I will tell you, I don't like it at all for deer hair. But oh, uh, I mean, oh no, it's t- it, you can't tie with deer hair with it. No. I only use GSP when it comes to deer hair. If I, yeah. I mean, I say only if I'm tying a Goddard caddis or an elf hair caddis or a stimulator or something. I'm not pulling out GSP for that, but. If I tie a streamer, like, for example, I tied a bunch of Endino deceivers for the guy that's going to Bolivia, Mm -hmm. and his deceivers were all tied with uh, 140 power thread from Vivas until I got to the head where I was stacking and trimming uh, deer hair for the head. Then I switched over to black 200 denier Vivas GSP. So I'll switch over to a different... Uh, thread and and i i will still use the only other weird thread i'll use is mono thread and that's only when i'm tying a 100 percent synthetic fly that's very simple so like a clouser that's only tied with synthetic material i i love what you're saying there because i i do think that most people when they're tying they have the companies they know and let's face it as as amateur tires we don't all have the luxury of having all of these threads 
um, usually that you're talking about. You know what I mean? Like I, I look, oh, yeah. I, I go through a lot of black. I go through a lot of white. I go through a lot of gray. There's certain colors that I, and and the one thing I, I steal from your your good buddy Davey there is is using lighter colored and then getting the old uh, sharpie out, and you can really change a pattern in a hurry just by touching it with a sharpie. Oh yeah, and and there's also this thing that I see where people don't want to switch threads halfway through a fly. There's just something about that that feels very foreign. And that happens, I think, more times than they know, um, where you'll tie a... Because your thread can make an impact on how the body of the fly looks. So if you're using a really light material, let's say like pearl mylar or a really light dubbing. Dubbing is my favorite fly tying material by far, but if I'm using something like, let's say like a minnow body... Uh, ice dub and I'm using a black thread that's going to be a much different body than if I use a white thread or a red thread or a chartreuse thread for the body and then swap it out for let's say black at the head mm-hmm. yeah. especially with like coronamids coronamids you see it all the time you'll yeah. see a guy who will tie a body of a coronamid and you can start with red and then switch to black and you'll get a you'll get something that people will go how did you do that because the other thing you got to take into account which is something new to our fly tying world is if you do use a Sharpie, how is that going to interact with any super glue or UV resin you're going to put on the fly? Yeah. It bleeds. Sometimes it bleeds into it and it looks like crap or, or it changes the color. So like I use Copic markers. I have a little air, you know, I have a little air compressor and I have a little airbrush and I'll use Copic. And I've done that where I've sprayed a fly or like I did these, bulkhead deceivers and i used white thread so i thought oh i'll just sharpie them and color them mm-hmm. and then as soon as i hit them with a the super glue yeah. all the sharpie went from black to like a burnt burgundy red and i was like it doesn't look bad but i was not expecting that well i've done the same thing with uv resin you know you you're, you've got all this kind of multicolored body and then you hit it with the uv and it just kind of blurs into one it's like oh crap that didn't yeah work. and then you and then you've ruined a fly that yeah. Or not ruined, but you've changed a fly from what you anticipated. And if you're, as the tires who are listening to this know, you'll have something in your head. Like you you thought of something while you're working or when you're working out or in the shower or you wake up in the middle of the night and you got this idea. And then when it doesn't turn out the way you want it, it's very frustrating. Yeah, well said. I love it. So do you do a lot, are most of what you're doing then custom patterns, Garrett? So if somebody calls you up or, or DMs you, on Instagram or findyour.com, oregonflytying.com. Are they saying to you for the most part, this is what I'm looking for? Or or is a lot of, I need some pertagons in this color combo in this size? Like, I'm always curious how those custom orders kind of come about. Yeah, so uh, that's a great question. I So I, I can do anything from, like I had a guy just take a picture of a fly he had and said, can you tie this for me? And... um because I tie so many flies and tied so many different varieties, I can pretty much tell what every material is on a fly um, without having to have a recipe book. I can just look at it and just know it's kind of like chefs who can just taste something or musicians who can just hear music and know the notes kind of thing. Um, so I can usually copy that. And I've done that before. The other thing I'll do is I'm more than happy to do like a consultation with someone in a sense where someone will send me an Instagram. I'll use the, use the guy down in Florida who's going to Bolivia. His name's Joe and he will, he has called me. We've talked on the phone or we've done emails back and forth 
And he just said, hey, I'm going down here. The yellow dog is who I'm going through. They say I should have black, white, chartreuse, orange. Um, what else have you tied for other people? What colors do you suggest? And then he's kind of like said, well, I want this many of this fly, this many of that fly in these colors. And then give me four flies in whatever colors you think are best. And then how much does it cost kind of thing. And that's, and that's what I'll do with people. Um, I've had someone say, well, I'm going to go fish the McKenzie. What kind of flies do I want? I said, oh, I'll just build you a sample box. What's your budget kind of thing? What, how many flies do you want? What's your budget? I had a guy up in Canada. I think it was Alberta, if I remember correctly. Alberta. Um, it was, yeah. Or, yeah, it was Alberta because it was near Edmonton. So um, he wanted still water flies. He said, I just want a sample box. I want some coronamids. I want some nymphs. I want some attractors. I want some pulling flies. Just build me a box. And then I'll write out your menu, email it to you, or however you want it sent. And then if everything checks out, I'll send you an invoice and then we'll be off to the races. But um, yeah, it's more so I try to work with people and what they want because I tie a million different styles of flies. And I'm not saying I can tie everything in the world. I know there's stuff I can't tie, but um, like I have a dragonfly that's woven. So I can do a woven fly or I can do a articulated streamer or a deer hair bass bug or whatever it may be. Um, mm. If it's something out there, I can probably figure it out for you. But usually it takes a little bit of talking or some pictures back and forth or some inspiration or whatever uh, it may be. But I'll more than happy to work with anybody who's looking for something very specific. You ever think, um, you ever think Garrett, when you're talking to somebody that maybe doesn't tie or doesn't know tying, it almost sounds like you're talking about a cooking class here. We're talking about recipes and menus and samples. It's like, I don't oh, know. Yeah. You know, it's it, it it's probably a funny. I forget sometimes that these are recipes that we're following. And and quite honestly, when I tie, I don't really follow the recipe. I'm like you, and then I look at it. I go, well, that looks like uh, natural rabbit with some uh, peacock curl, and you start going through the materials in your brain of what maybe you have on your bench that you could make it look similar. It doesn't have to be exactly the same, right? I mean, true. Um, it doesn't have to be exactly the same and I usually don't do it exactly the same. Um, but for example, I mean, if you could see my fly tying collection, I mean, I think it would make some fly shops jealous with how many, how much material I have here. Hmm. So I probably have the material and then every brand is slightly different. And yeah, I mean, as a fly tire, I went through a uh, earlier this year. So in the late winter, spring of this year of 2023. So January, March kind of time, I was going through the quest to find the perfect blue brass bead, specifically brass um, for some still water flies. I wanted to tie. And I think I bought, five different blue beads from five different companies trying to find the right one. And, uh, eventually I figured it out, but like a great example of this, I'm looking at one of the materials I'm kind of dabbling with right now is like flexi floss or sexy floss or mm -hmm. that kind of material. And every company is different. Some diet where it's super straight, some make it very curly. Some dyes are slightly different than others. Some have a different, color palettes entirely mm -hmm. um 
and then it's also figuring out what they mean by certain colors. That's one of the more frustrating things I've found in fly tying is when companies name things uh, to be cute in a sense. I, that feels disparaging. I'm not trying to be in that way. But when you name a material um, monster or yeah. summer sky or sweet potato, it, it doesn't help the fly tire because I don't know what summer sky looks like. I mean, I know what I think it looks like, yeah. but I have to think what does Mr. Smith who came up with the material think summer sky looks like? Well, I know in my neck of the woods, there's certain materials that have aren't available anymore, or they've changed. Like you said, over the years, they've changed. Like I think of flashaboo, there's certain flashaboo number of color combinations that you cannot get anymore. And they're like, gold to some people oh oh yeah I, i'm you know the classic one i think is an old one is chadwick 477 you can't get that wool anymore and you can just get substitutes that look like it mm -hmm. i mean it's all very specific and so what i have found is um the advice i'd give any fly tire who's tying flies as soon as you find a material you like they will discontinue it or change the dye badge <laughs> almost immediately. And I, I'm being facetious and I'm being a little dramatic with it. But if you find a material you like and you really, really like it, buy as much as you can reasonably afford because most <laughs> fly time materials don't go bad. They're not milk. It's like why when I buy hooks by the thousand, it's not that I buy a thousand. If I don't use them in 30 days, they're going to get thrown away. As long as I keep them dry mm -hmm. and out of the direct sunlight, most fly tying materials should last indefinitely. And as long as it's bug free, bug free, dry and out of the direct sunlight, yeah. almost everything should last forever. And so, um, I've had plenty of guys. So for example, down here in the States, polar bear is not legal. It's right. really hard to find legal polar bears. So what some people did is they went to skunk and now you can't really find skunk because people don't trap skunks anymore. Um, and then they went, oh, we'll use Kid Goat. And then Kid Goat was discontinued. And then it was Arctic Fox. And then Arctic Fox was hard. I mean, mm -hmm. it just constantly happens, just using that as an example. Yeah. So Seal. Seal you... comes to mind. Seal was uh, widely used when uh, when I was probably yeah. uh, in my teen, late teens. Uh, and you can't get Seal anymore. So if you can, no. it's usually full of sawdust. And it's really expensive. And it's hard to find. Um, so... Th those are one example, but I've had colors that I really, really like. Uh, for example, ice dubbing is a great example of this. I really like the pheasant tail ice dub, and they've changed the dye batch on it. Mm. So I have to buy a different color of ice dub that actually is closer to the original pheasant tail, but isn't called pheasant. It's, but you have to figure that kind of stuff out. Yeah. Um, and then a little insight for the listeners. It's usually not the fly tying manufacturers fault when they when a color changes or something like that happens it's not it's not the guys at semperfly or up Avon or hairline or wopsy or Venyard or whoever's out there it's usually not their fault that a color is now different than it was the olive is not as dark as it used to be it's usually because they have to use organic dyes and those organic dyes are constantly changing because somewhere someone might have found something in it that is questionable. Mm -hmm. And so they have to replace it with a new uh, organic dye material. And that chemistry, because dyeing is a very chemistry de um, 
sensitive process, mm-hmm. one of those new organic dye elements in the dye batch is slightly different and then it will react with the acid and the heat during the dye process and now you get a lighter a darker a different texture material not necessarily on purpose yeah that's and so it's technically the same olive or the same fluorescent orange or the same red but something out outside of the control of the manufacturer's um ability has changed and they have to go with something else. I mean, that's, I don't want to get them all off the hook, but that's usually the case. So that's mm-hmm. why when you find one that you like, um, just buy a lot of it. It's again, if you're going to tie the fly, if you actually think you're going to tie that fly, um, a lot because it's a successful fly, just buy a lot of it. Like I have a lot of, I mentioned that blue paradigm. I have a lot of blow bright blue. I just have a lot of it probably more than my entire life and I'll give it to my kids or grandkids or give it to someone I'm mentoring when I get old because I didn't use it all up, but <laughs> at least for the flies I needed, I have it. Yeah. That's a good point. I'm like that with materials. If I see something I've never seen before that looks really cool, you you know, you throw it in the basket or whatever, but then it's like, okay, well I need this in this color as well. It's uh it's a vicious circle. Fly shops can be sometimes. It's like, man, I. Uh, it's hard to know when to stop. <laughs> if that makes sense. Well, that's the thing is, is the worst thing that can happen is you buy the material because you thought it was cool at the time. Then two years, three years goes down the line. You find that material in your bin because you because you're like, I'm pretty sure I bought that at one point. You look through all your stuff. You find it because you saw a pattern someone tied. It turns out it's really great. Then you go to buy more of it and the dye batch has changed or they've discontinued it or mm-hmm. it becomes impossible to find. And it's just, I mean, I have dug high and low. So like one of the materials that I dug forever and had to buy from overseas eventually was Mark Pettigene's magic heads. I don't know if you remember those at all. No, no. So it's a soft cone that goes over the eye of your hook that you tie in that's facing forward. Okay. And what that does is it causes your fly to wobble when you strip it in, just kind of like a Rapala or a Rapala, okay, like yeah. a crankbait. Like a lip. But yeah. it doesn't it doesn't dive and it doesn't pick up. It just wobbles. Hmm. And there's a fly tire and fly fisherman that I really, really like, Gunnar Brammer out of Minnesota. And he had a fly called the Firefly 2.0 that he used that magic head on. And I had some that were deep, deep in my drawer, tied some of those flies, and they are smallmouth magnets. I have done unbelievable for smallmouth with that specific fly. Hmm. The issue is, is they used to be distributed through Hairline. Uh, Pedigee no longer is distributed through Hairline. Probably seven years ago, they stopped doing that. Um, and they're, they're a Swiss company, so I had to figure out how to find them. And I eventually b- bought them from a German company. Hmm. Um, and bought them and had them and I bought a ton. I bought like almost a hundred dollars worth of it of one material, hmm. and I don't I haven't used them all up. But it was the only place I could find them was Germany, and I bought them and had them shipped over. Um, I just bought some stuff directly from the company Vasna, I think is how you say it. They sell like hooks, and they're mostly known for their hooks here in the states. But they have some cool sh- uh, blob chenilles and Fritz and some other materials that they had that I liked. And they're out of the Netherlands. Hmm. You, so sound I buy like, a lo- you do your homework, man. This is, 
like you're going to the ends oh, yeah. of the earth here. I joked at a at a at a club meeting uh, that I was speaking at that I bought a ton of stuff from uh, Frozen North fly fishing and from Up Avon. This was this was when the Queen died, so this was last year, mm-hmm. around last year. And when the, it turns out that um, you get a really good conversion rate when the most beloved royal in the entire world passes away. Um, hmm. So I stocked up that week <laughs> well. um, because I got a great conversion rate. And so I bought a, so I'm on top of that kind of stuff all the time. I'm looking at conversion yeah. rates. I'm looking at, right on. uh, and one thing I found is I don't know how it is in Canada, but in the States shipping within the United States is very affordable. If I want to yeah. ship from Oregon to Nebraska, I mean, to give you an idea, if I want to mail a letter from here to anywhere in the United States, it's the same price no matter what. Mm-hmm. It's always the yeah. same price, which is because it's a service here in the United States. It's part of the Constitution. It's it's legally obligated to do that. But if I want to ship outside of the United States, it's very expensive. If I want to ship yeah. U-flies, yeah. it's going to be double or triple, which yeah. you're closer than Nebraska, but yeah, it's because exactly. we're crossing the border. Exactly. Yeah. But – what I have found is, especially in Europe, international shipping in Europe is very affordable. And my only guess is, is because their countries are so small, if international shipping wasn't affordable, nothing could cross borders. And so, mm-hmm. so I think the most I've paid from getting stuff from Europe, from England or Wales or Germany or the Netherlands or Romania or wherever I'm buying stuff from or Poland or anything like that, I think the most I've paid is $15 for an order. That's pretty good. Which is, who knows how it is now, but like I bought stuff out of Poland. I bought stuff out of Romania, and I think it was like 10 bucks to ship it across an ocean and a continent. I mean, it does take 17 days to get here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it's not, I don't need it tonight. I, I, can, I can let it go for, a, you know, I can wait the 14, 15 20 days that I need to. I, I got this vision now in my head of, of your space and you said you're in an apartment. I'm thinking it kind of looks more like a retail outlet. <laughs> um, it's not as uh, front facing as that, but it is pretty well organized. I have, I took a picture of my desk the other day. I cleaned it up and got the new hairline uh, foamanizers for my desk. So that's how my new layout is. Yeah. Uh, I'll send you a picture to put in the show notes. I love it. Yeah, you gotta you gotta send me a, a good pick. Um, I love what you're up to, man. And I honestly, uh, Garrett, I could talk to you all night. And I think I think you and I should do another show. When what you you kind of struck a, cur- uh, a chord with me when you said we could do a whole show on thread. I'm like, you know what? That's a great idea. I think people at Ty would be interested in that because you 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 have a lot of talking points. I mean, I I'll do a lot of listening, but I I only know the experience that I've had with thread. There's certain threads I do not like. Um, but now you, you kind of explain why. So, and, and I guess that's like a tool, just finding the right one for the right job. Oh yeah. And I, I mean, I have a, I, a buddy came over and tied flies with me the other day and I showed him my sack of rejection scissors that I bought over the years that I don't use anymore. Mm. And it's just a, it's just a big sack of scissors. Well, I look like a, a crazy person, but I mean, you, you pick through them, you figure out the ones you like and what you don't like. And, what works for you? What works for me may not work for somebody else. I mean, go yeah. to the scissor thing. I, I hate razor scissors. I hate the tensioning knob. It drives me crazy. Hmm. But I have a buddy who only uses those kind of scissors. Those are his favorite. He loves them. Yeah. It's, so it's, it's fascinating. 
I guess you're not cutting a lot of Kevlar with your scissors either, are you? So you're probably good. I mean, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> For some reason that stuck with me. I, I do use razor blades quite a bit, especially on small flies like chironomids. Um Oh, I've gone more into that. I, I keep obviously with cutting the deer hair, I have a lot of I have a lot of double sided razor blades. But I get those single sided, you know, scraper style razor blades. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I usually have one of those stuck to like a magnetic tool or hook organizer so it doesn't run away on me. But yeah, yeah I, I, it's I nice to have on the desk. Yeah, for sure. Well, listen, man, thanks so much for spending some time with us, uh, telling us about your uh, your business, your fly time business, your day job, uh, your passion. Uh, really appreciate it. And you know what? I'm sure you and I are probably going to run into each other at uh, at Bellevue at the Bellevue show. Uh, so I'll look forward to coming over and giving you a hard time and seeing, seeing what you're tying up. I'm excited for it. We've been chatting tonight with Garrett Lesko. Garrett's out of Lebanon, Oregon. He's with OregonFlyTying.com. Check him out. What's your Instagram before we let you go? Is, is that just Oregon? So yeah, all social media. I have a shared page with, uh, my friend, Garen, Oregon fly tying. Um, but everything else, if you just want to find me personally, it's just Garrett Lesko. That's Facebook, Instagram, wherever I'm doing social, that's where you can find me. Perfect. Thanks again, my friend. Appreciate it. Tight lines and uh, have, have a good tying season and uh, show season coming up. Thanks. Looking forward to it. Thanks for listening to the Fly Fishing 97 podcast, powered by theflycrate.com. Your source for all things fly fishing. Wait for it films featuring fly fishing videos and camera related content. Custom music from Damian Anderson and by brokentippet.com.